Welcome to this edition of Bond by the Numbers. Uh, this is uh, Josh Taylor, aka the BFG, Jeff Chapman in Ottawa. Jeff hasn't come up with a nickname yet for himself. Uh, we also have the Bowman, Scott Powell himself, over in Scotland. The Bowman. When did I? When did I? Uh, when did I acquire the? Yeah. The. The Bowman. Mm-hmm. It's like well, the Batman. Can, yeah, the Batman. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Kind of like that. Or the Edge. Yeah. Or, so or the Rock. Yeah. Or the Rock. <laughs> or the Rock. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, the Rock sounds better. Yeah. How about the Bowman? Because the Bowman could refer to you know like someone like like um, an, an archer or something like that, right? Yeah. Like Welsh Bowman. It could indeed. Yeah, because aren't Powell's Welsh? They are. So there you go. The Welsh Bowman. It works perfectly. <laughs> there we go. Right. And now let's see you tie that all into Quantum is, of Solace. Is, is this like a 23andMe commercial? What's going on? <laughs> yeah. I think right. you can tie a lot of things into Quantum of Solace because it's all over the place. It, it, mm. Yes. Well, this is our sixth episode, our fifth film, Quantum of Solace. Boys, how are you feeling about it? I feel pretty good. It's interesting. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I have a few thoughts on that. We'll get to later. I, I, definitely, I definitely enjoyed it more the second or third time around. Well, I hardly, re- I didn't even remember half of this movie, so that tells you how often I watched it. Yeah, and it's only ten years say, old. As a hot yeah, take, sure. I will say as a hot take, I enjoyed this more than Spectre. Oh yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll see how hot that take is. This is episode six of Bomb by Numbers, as you rightly say, Josh. Let's let's just jump straight into this. We've got. A real interesting episode here today because Quantum of Solace, of course, came at an interesting time. It was really the first true sequel to any Bond film yeah, that, that we've had. That's, that's very interesting. And given the format of our own show, it's coming at an interesting time because we're reviewing it before we review the yeah uh, quant- uh, the sorry the Casino Royale from which you know, Royale. yeah from which it comes. So it, it's it's odd, maybe I guess. We could have thought about doing this differently. Like if we landed on Quantum, then we would wait until we'd done Casino Royale or we'd do them together. But I think we can handle this. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, if anything, I think we'll have kind of a basis more to look at Casino Royale from a different perspective. Yeah, that's what I think. That it, I think just sort of the way the ball rolled, as if you will, it, it, it will make us exactly. It kind of gives us another sort of uh, objective way of thinking about it instead of just sort of like watching the two back to back. Yeah, exactly. Unless, unless the wheel this week has Casino Royale, then we kind of watch it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what the bookies would give us on that. I mean, our odds are getting better because the movies are getting fewer. Well, Josh is making on a Roger Moore today. Yeah, so well... It... I just think the odds point that direction. Well, that, <laughs> they do. They do. And I think it's really neat because the first one we had was uh, Brosnan. The yep. second one we had was a Dalton. The third one we had was Lazenby. Mm-hmm. The fourth one was Connery. So I think um, I think in the next week, and now we have Craig. So the next one around, I think it's going to be um, a more. I think the odds are for it. What about? Uh, but you never know. It could be Casino Royale. Like who knows? What if we have a Woody Allen? No, I'm kidding. He's not in there. I, I know, I'm kidding. Well, yeah, but you know, we made the decision not to look at that. Maybe we could do that as a fun episode afterwards. I, that actually, that would be quite fun, actually. I think. I don't know how you feel about that, but now, I didn't really check my my sources on this because it just came to me the spur of the moment. Woody Allen did he direct Casino Royale, the parody film, or oh, or he I just starred in it? I think he just acted in it. Yeah, I think he just acted in it. Um, Woody Allen, I'll find out for you now. Uh, what made you think of that? Me? Oh no! Well, Jeff just mentioned well, Woody I Allen. Because I mentioned the, the, the Woody Allen like oh, Casino Royale. Right. That's yeah. why. Yeah, yeah. 
Well, let's find out. Okay. 67, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Casino Royale, directed by, uh, definitely not, four, there were four more, six credits in directors. We've got, yeah, we've got uh, Val Guest, Ken Hughes, John Huston. I did remember John Huston was involved in that now that I'm looking maybe, at this. Maybe yeah. they multiple parts of the movie. Maybe it was like, yeah, maybe it was almost like, like the units, like the different like film crews. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I can break it down for you if you want, but I, I have very little um, context oh, for these scenes. Oh, so. Yeah. Uh, Joe McGrath, Robert Parrish, and Richard Talmadge also directed, but it is the John Huston of Western fame, like the John Huston, the same. Yeah. Movie, so and and also the villain of Chinatown as well. Yeah, what a great movie that is. Oh man. Speaking so, of water crises. Mm, yeah, well that that's right. Let's move away from Casino Royale and move into this. But first, right. let's recap the previous show, guys. Episode five was all about Goldfinger, a film that we all enjoyed, a film we all accepted, and I think celebrate as a Connery classic for, for me personally the takeaway was yes Oddjob is great and Gert Frobus is great but I thought Connery was fantastic that's the Connery film that I would probably recommend over the others regardless of kind of where my favorites sit I really think that Connery was just really fun to watch in that one particularly because he, he doesn't do a lot and so we get to see him be a bit more charming and humorous maybe than he would he is naturally when he's cool and cutting you know yeah, he has to talk yeah. himself out of situations. He's not in control at all. He's at That's the villain's right. yeah. mercy most of the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm Jeff Rubin, and I approve that statement. Yeah. <laughs> and we voted it and rated it high, didn't we? We gave it good scores. Yeah. We did. And again, I think a lot of it for me was the the sets. Uh, like they just sort of really immersed you. If I, when you watch it, it's one of those movies where you're just you're in there, and you're like, "This is great." Like it, mm-hmm. that really helps. I find for these kind of films. Mm-hmm. So where were you, Josh? Where were you, Jeff? What's your first memory of this film? Because unlike some of the others we've reviewed, where we talked about our family sending us this or you watching it with your dad, here we've got a movie that's of our time and in our time. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Josh and I saw it together at, at the AMC Theater. So yeah, with uh, Phil Boyer. Yep. Yeah, uh, a yeah. friend of ours. Yeah, uh, I remember going in the theater and seeing that and kind of expecting something like Casino Royale. Yeah. I kind of walked out going... What was that? Whoa. <laughs> well, well, you know, it was like, well, that's what we were saying. It's like, oh, look at this Jason Bond movie, you mm. know. <laughs> it, it is. Or James Bond, whatever James Bond. James Bond. James Bond movie. Well, that's something we do have to talk about because there is a very conscious shift towards that action of the time. And I don't know how we, how we like our James Bond. Many people love Craig for his action. I mean, I know our grandmother is one of them, Josh. And yes. she'll she'll say something similar, I'm sure, in our interview coming up. But um, many people don't. I mean, none of this action. Of course, it's of its time. We know that. I get that. You know. But Connery and Moore didn't rely on this type of action. They relied more on their charm and their suave. And that's part of the literary character. This is a departure from the literary character. And yes. I think we do need to talk a little bit about that too when we get there. But I saw it like you guys. I was uh, in the cinema to watch it. I was living over here. In Scotland, this was my second Bond as uh, a British resident, if you will. Uh, the first was Casino Royale, which I saw in cinemas up here, and then I went and saw Quantum. I would have seen that with my now wife, probably the first Bond we saw together. I can't remember for sure, but there you go. Could be. You became incredibly Irish all of a sudden. Did I? Yeah. Sorry, Must man. be the uh, new feet coming into play. Mm, probably. Probably. I remember also being kind of hyped up before the movie came out with like the Jack White and Alicia Keys yeah. song because yeah. I was in, I was really into the White Stripes and Jack White back then. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, That's pretty- yeah, yeah. I, I remember yeah. you being really into it. 
I was I was too because I, I mean Jack White's pretty much my favorite like modern musician of the last like thirty years. I think he, he him and uh, Dave Grohl are, in my opinion, sort of they, they've kept the rock and roll genre going on. Uh, just to sort of sort of stay on task on that. <laughs> yeah, really, you like him that much? Well, I mean, we can save this chat for when we talk about the title, or we can talk about it oh. now. It's it's interesting because. I can see both of these artists I do have respect for and I like, you know, I think that Alicia Keys is is great. I think that Jack White is good. I, I just don't I don't think they work together, but Well the, yeah. the funny thing is is I was about to say the same thing. Like this song is cool and what actually this is what's interesting about this song is I'm like this the video and this song just goes uh, it proves that Jack White could have done the white stripes by himself mm-hmm. because he plays the drums in this song. <laughs> Does he really? <laughs> yes. Well, he plays yeah. the line over his own music, yeah. right? Because in the in the in the music video for it, he's actually playing the drums. I think the actual I don't think I've seen the music video. So that's why I just thought it was like you know what he can totally do the White Stripes yeah. by himself. Yeah, I watched the music video last yeah. night, um, and uh, yeah, it's exactly as Jeff yeah. describes it. He mm-hmm. he was a drummer first, I think, before he even I think he, even before he did the guitar. Anyways, but. Uh, and that's the thing. It's like you have two great artists of the decade. Yeah. Um, and but the song is kind of mediocre. It's not the worst song, but you know, it's it's quite interesting. It seems it seems very quickly thrown together yeah. at the last minute, which was the yeah. case. Well, again, I feel, and I'm going to use this a few times. I don't know if Josh agreed with me on this uh, statement, but I find this movie, and I guess the song, like again, the song I feel also follows suit. Is I find it impersonal. Mm-hmm. And the song is just kind of like, well, okay, it's a song, but you know yeah. what? Any other people other than Jack White and Alicia Keys could have done this song. <laughs> this kind of is kind of a leading into when I get to the <laughs> Cubby's Corner part of the show, but Cubby's Casket. Cubby's Casket in this case, because Eleanor Broccoli was not alive during the production of Quantum of Solace, but he came back to life afterwards. And for the other ones, no, just kidding. Um, what? <laughs> like, what? I don't even get what you're on about. Yeah, I just went on some. I don't know. I, I found what I said was kind of di- ridiculous, so I kind of corrected myself. But then I came up more ridiculous. So uh, what, did you, what did you put in that coffee? Yeah. yeah. What, are you, what are you drinking over there this morning? Lots, lots and lots of sugar in there. I guess who knows. Well, why don't we do it then? Let's get into Cubby's Corner because this is time where we talk about the production of the film. Well, we'll talk about the just to go about the show, the song. Originally, Amy Winehouse was supposed mm, to do the, the song. Uh, David Arnold, David Arnold, the composer of the film, who um, who has done the Bond films since uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, he got Amy Winehouse originally to to do the song. At the end, Amy Winehouse had her problems back in two thousand eight. This is actually about a year before she she overdosed, and so it was never used. And at the last minute, they threw. Jack White and Alicia Keys together to come up with was it Crawl that song. and Crawl? No, that was no Crawl and Crawl is oh. is the really cool um, the instrumental piece and and oh, and, and credits right. Right. Um, music at the end of the film, which is actually really good. Um, but I was going to say that um, years later, David Arnold then took that song and uh, when he was producing the Shirley Bassey album, and then he had her record. Uh, her version, her cover, I guess, of, of that particular song. And if you go on YouTube, you can look up like Quantum of Solace um, main title song. It's like the alternate one, and it's actually really well done. And it really captures the idea of Bond's pain and what he was going through 
Um, it's too bad it wasn't used, but uh, apparently the Broccoli's, that is Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, um, they didn't want to have that old, old-timey old kind of Bond song. They wanted to continue with the Chris Cornell kind of modern rock kind of mm-hmm. feel, you know, that fits the character, that fit the character better. <clears throat> yeah, and I can see the decision, oh, yeah. I can see the decision making, but as Jeff said a moment ago, to him, at least this film feels very impersonal. And you, you'd think that in an effort to try to make it personal, the style to match the the story of revenge and whatnot, that you would get almost somebody like the song from Spectre. You know, you'd almost get that. Yeah, yeah, you you definitely would. Kind of like a Sam Smith or Sam, something. Yeah, like Sam Smith stuff. Like, not that I'm a big fan of that song because no. I'm not, but it, it would almost work better for this, wouldn't it? But I I I, I definitely agree with you with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so sorry. Or Cubby's casket. So. Um, yeah, I thought just talking about the song was just a good lead into that. Um, the the film itself, Conquam uh, Solace, it cost uh, two hundred million dollars, and uh, producer Michael G. Wilson, aka the other Broccoli sibling, he was developing the plot while Casino Royale was still in production. The screenplay was written um, by Neil Purvis, Jack Wade, and Paul Haggis, but this was during the production of the famous Hollywood's writer strike of two thousand eight. And if you think about this film and all the stuff that went into it, which I'll go into a bit, this 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 movie is definitely a product of the writer's strike. Um, like during this period, when when the writer's strike occurred, director Mark Forster and star Daniel Craig were writing between takes basically because they could not commission any extra script by Haggis or Purvis or Wade at the time because of the writer's strike. In fact, the first draft by Paul Haggis was completed two hours before the writer's strike occurred. Talk about making your deadlines. Two hours? Yeah. He, he completed it within two hours of the strike occurring. Wow, okay. So, so they probably knew it was going down, right? It was going to go out at an official time. And he just and he had to get that, that done be, before the strike occurred, right? Mm-hmm. Because afterwards, they couldn't use him until it was resolved. Sure. It was intended to be a direct sequel to Casino Royale. And with Bond reacting to the event of Vesper's betray- uh, betrayal and death. The, re- the director originally slated was Roger Mitchell. I don't know if anyone's seen a movie called Chasing Lanes. He was the director of that. Um, but, Chasing but, Lanes. Is that the one with Ed, no- oh, Ed Norton? No, Ed Burns. Ben Affleck, it's with Ben Affleck and Samuel Jackson. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, and yes. Okay, It's sorry. a very interesting kind of Hitchcockian thriller. It's, uh, I, I recommend going back to it. A lot of people crap on it, but I thought it was a nice little thriller, and it reminded me of Hitchcock. Yeah, it was not bad. I, I watched it years later because you got me to watch it. I was like, okay, wasn't it? It was pretty good. Yeah, I think we, I picked up the DVD or something oh, like yeah. that. It was on. It, a was, definitely, for, it was definitely DVD. It was like a two for thirty deal at the record store. Was that a film? Was that a film that contained much action? There was some action. Yeah, yeah. There was, yeah. There was, there was, there was kind a couple of car chases. That some I car chases. Yeah. This would have been two thousand or two uh, two thousand or two thousand one. Yeah, I, I can't quite recall. Okay. So I'm just curious because. Um, Mark Forster's not really known for his actions other. No, no, he's definitely not. He was actually, so he came came out of the wire when Roger Mitchell couldn't do it. Mark Forster was hired to direct. Now, Forster was the first Bond director not from the British Commonwealth, but he thought he was a perfect choice for a Bond film because like Ian Fleming's Bond, he's part Swiss. (laughs) Best known for directing the Billy Bob Thornton and Holly Berry Lovin' Monsters Ball. That's sarcasm because the movie was about a prisoner, a prison executioner who has an affair with the wife of a man he executed. And we saw way too much of Billy Bob in that film. 
just I've give seen, me. I've seen way too much of Billy Bob. Generally, I don't like the guy. And uh, you know, part of the reason, I, part of the reason I don't like him is because of that Q show that he did with Gian Gameshi. Do you remember seeing that? Oh, well, oh man, I saw that. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was, that was terrible. What? Like that what? was so uh, well, awkward. Given oh, what happened with Gameshi, I mean, that's not surprising. Yeah, well, fine. I mean, G- Gameshi's got his own problems, right? But as in his role as the interviewer, that whole thing was completely bonkers. Oh my god! I must have missed this. This it sounds familiar now that now that you guys are bringing it up. Yeah, though. it was it was uh, fam- it was kind of like a viral video. I forget what year it was. It was a while ago. Yeah, I mean he he went on the show in the capacity of, of a musician with his band, the the Something Boys, and yeah. he was he was playing a live session and being interviewed. But any oh, any, any slight reference to him as an actor, he Billy just, Bob just, Thornton was yeah. just was just bizarrely rude and like condescending and dismissive and and basically saying like I'm not going to talk about that I'm not going to talk about that like why are you doing this to me and like just really weird and Gameshi was totally on his toes the whole time like yeah holy yeah shit. the thing is is as bad as the guy is as we find out later uh, he was pretty professional about you know keeping keeping uh, keeping it going oh he so, did a very good job I thought just yeah. to maintain a conversation when he must have been raging inside or really feeling uncomfortable because, you know, that was that was being broadcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. Q did have its live broadcast before it went to podcast, right? Yes, that's correct. Anyway, sorry, guys. I'm getting off track. All of that just to say, <laughs> yeah, that's the six degrees of separation with Mark Forster. <laughs> well, I guess it connects to that. And that's also the film, too, that Holly Berry won her Oscar for, and that was, like, the peak of her career because after that, I didn't really see her. She kind of just, like, just end up doing a lot of garbage afterwards. What are you talking about? Catwoman's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I no. loved I loved the character of Jinx in Die Another Day. Oh. Oh yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah. I just realized yeah. she was also a Bond girl. That's right. Wow, that connects yeah. too. There you go. Wow. Right. Yeah. Hey, thank you for bringing him back. That's good. Yeah. Really? Anyways, Billy Bob, I you know just give me a moment to rinse my eyes with bleach after seeing his sling blade. <laughs> um, Forster wanted to bring Bond down to earth and deal with real world politics. Uh, for the Bond girl, Camille Montez, he auditioned over 400 actresses. Uh, it was Ukrainian model slash actress Olga Kurylenko was chosen because she was the only one that didn't seem nervous during the audition. Uh, both Forster and Hagis did not want Camille to be Bond's lover. Instead, her own revenge against the evil Medrano for killing her family and leaving her to die in a house fire was a way to compare Bond's own feelings about Vesper's betrayal. Uh, Matthew Omarik, who played, who was cast as Dominic Green, took the role because he wanted to up his cool quota with his kids and said quota would be denigrated if he turned down a Bond role. Gemma Arterton, who played Strawberry Fields, uh, a name that was only, where in the film we only hear her, her name as just, just Fields because um, they never ever actually referred to her as Strawberry Fields as her full name in the film. But she was. But that's what she was in the cast. Mm-hmm. And I guess they just didn't know how to employ it in the writing properly so i guess they just had it as a fun thing behind the scenes i suppose i think that's really dumb to be honest like they didn't know how to employ it in the writing maybe like what these fucking professional writers couldn't come up with a first name for a woman i don't know they could have had some awkward scene just to just to kind of as a nod to old bond yeah i mean i'm very glad they didn't mention it in the film because this is not a film where you want a pussy galore or a plenty of tool running around right yeah and yet they still managed to reference like gold in the film. Yeah, they did, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. She was spotted by the Broccoli's during a performance of Love's Labor's Lost at Globe Theatre playing mm. Rosalind. And then they decided to hire her for the role. And as we talked about, her death is a direct homage to Shirley Eaton's death in Goldfinger. Um, it was filmed in multiple countries, uh, like all Bond films are, with Pinewood 
studio, of course, doing all of the uh, in interior work. Um, it wasn't filmed in Bolivia, actually. Um, it was filmed in um, Chile for the sequences in Bolivia. Bregenz, Austria, was uh, was a place they filmed on location where we saw the opera of Tosca yeah, in, in its weird way that it was presented. The Echo Hotel uh, was, was in the desert of uh, the Atamada Desert in Chile was the set Atacama, sorry, Atacama Desert in Chile was the setting for the hotel powered by solar cells in, in, in the film's finale. I so that I, place does exist. Well, I was it say, wasn't just a huge Ken Adams uh, yeah. <laughs> wet dream. Well, the other thing is I thought it, I thought it was called Eco because I thought, you know, the whole thing about the environment. But maybe it's Echo. <laughs> it could be Echo, yeah, the Echo Hotel, yeah. <laughs> Forrester wanted to, like, do a lot of showing the uh, the the world above and the world below. Like in the opening sequence in Siena, um, he showed the horse races on the surface above and then had all the agents doing their work below, kind of indicating the, sh the shadowy intrigue going on beneath the surface, you know, with our governments. He wanted to, to, to bring that out in the film. I thought that was actually really good they, and, and really well done. And they did not they did it more than once in the film uh, with sort of levels. Like, for example, even when they're in the... Um the, the the caverns there when uh, you know he, he crashes the plane there's a lot of I find there's a lot of sort of imagery of going through levels like for example he does that whole plate glass window like uh, scene when he uh, shoots the guy when he's um, they're falling through the glass there I like the to call that, in the I call that I call that the skyfall fight if you will <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I I found there was a lot of sort of reference to levels and it, I think the way they had sort of the uh, the craziness of that bu of that bullfight or running of the bulls or whatever the proper term is, pardon me, um, and then showing what was going on underneath was a, was quite well done actually. That was one of my kind of my favorite sort of uh, pieces of the film, sort of artistically actually. I also want to add to um, with the production. So we had our, our regular principals return for the cast. Uh, we had M returning, uh, Judy Dench returning as M. Um, from Casino Royale, carrying over is, uh, is Giancarlo Giannini as Rene Mathis. And uh, Jeffrey Wright, who was introduced as Felix Leiter in Casino Royale, also mm -hmm. returns in this one and plays a, not a small but significant role yeah. in, in, in the film. Mm -hmm. uh, we also have Anatole Taubman. He was cast as Elvis, who you never really know his name in the film, oh, but okay. he's the freaky-looking dude that works for Green. Kind of looks like the eagle from, from the Muppets. Yeah. Ah, oh, interesting point about him. He, yeah, he plays. I don't know if you guys have watched Killing Eve. Oh, I know. Well, I know what the oh, show he, oh, is. Oh, Anatole Tolman's on that show. He's on that show for one episode. He plays a guy who is is in a kind of like <clears throat> part of another character's German life. Okay, a backstory in this character right. that we follow for the first couple episodes. He had a story when he was living and working in Germany, and he hooks up with this guy who is yeah, who is that actor, and he he plays a very interesting role. Like anyway, I won't. In case you're going to see it, but yeah, he's in that for just a quick episode. And it was Sarah who pointed it out just the other night. Said, "Isn't that the guy that was in Quantum of Solace?" I'm like, "No." And then I'm like, "Wait a minute." And then I'm like, "Yeah, you're right. It is." Exactly. I, I feel like that character Elvis in Quantum of Solace <clears throat> is sort of. I think that kind of sums up the whole writer strike issue. It's like, what are we going to do for a henchman? We're going to have a guy who has the haircut of the Duke of Anjou. <laughs> uh, we're going to call him Elvis. 
Yeah. And we're going to let him do nothing more than wear a neck brace. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's going to wear a, a neck he's going to wear a necklace. So what we want what's your what's your motivation? Well, we want to have a cross between, you know, like uh some kind of dandy from like, you know, the the 16th century. <laughs> oh, and then we're going to add a little bit of henchman oh, and a little bit of Andy Warhol. Yeah. And then can okay, make this work. Okay, sure. <laughs> what's happening? Then we also of course we have um Jesper Christensen returning as Mr. White from Casino Royale, and that guy to me was has been always been memorable in the series. I actually think he should have ended up being kind of the Blofeld of the story, in I my opinion. I would agree with that. But that's another thing altogether. Um, we got the MI6 team getting rounded out too. Uh, Rory Kinnear is cast as Bill Tanner, um, who is a, a character from the Fleming novels as well. Uh, we also then have some other roles that were casted. Um, David Harbour. Um, who was a, who wasn't really a known quantity back then, but because of Stranger Things, he's quite popular yeah. now. He played Greg Beam, the CIA section chief. Mm-hmm. I, I liked him. He was he was believable as his role yeah, for that CIA kind of like dirty, just sort of lets things go. He's kind of like a desk job kind of guy. With like, yeah. he, he didn't have like the whole mustache. They wanted to really make sure the banality of evil with that guy. <laughs> yeah, the cookie duster of evil, yeah. <laughs> if you will. Yeah, so it seems like there was a, like because of the writer's strike, um, it was went from two thousand and seven, two thousand eight. The Haggis, Forster, and Wilson they all wrote the screenplay from scratch and different pieces. And as I mentioned, Craig and um, Forster did did stuff behind the scenes, like between takes that that they could. Forster wanted the action sequences to be based around the four classical elements of earth, water, air, and fire. So you get an idea that this guy was really bringing a different dynamic to the series, and yet he ended up producing a film that kind of looked like, or directing a film, I should say, that looked like a Paul Greengrass film, like the yeah. second or third Born film, just yeah. with crazy cutting and, and shaky cameras and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So I had, very, had, I had difficulty, I don't know if you guys did, seeing the art this guy was trying to yeah. put forth. It was there, but it was just like edited to pieces. So if you think about those four classical elements of earth, water, air, and fire, so you have earth, I guess, would be the scene in in Siena, those terracotta rooftops and whatnot. Then you have water, the boat chase sequence in Port-au-Prince. Air of the plane chase. Then you have air of the plane chase and yeah. fire, of course, of the finale when the hotel combusts. Well, if you also if you go earth, what about when they were like in the uh, the cave there? You could say that too, right? That's right. There's also take a story taken from the headlines for the plot. Um, Hagus's idea of basing it on the water supply issue in Bolivia as the main theme of the film. And this is based on something called the Cochabamba Water Revolt. And I think uh, Jeff has some notes on that. I do. It's uh, it's interesting. It, it happened in December 99, 2000. Basically what happened was that there was um, demonstrations because this, uh, this company was trying to – they gouged the prices for water and because they wanted to build a big dam. And the people revolted because they they just gouged the prices so much. People revolted, and then it kind of became like this uh, this unified fight against the government. What happened is they kind of ran that company out, uh, and there was thousands of people marching, and then there was um, protests. And a person was killed, uh, and basically the company uh, they were told they had to uh, like leave the country, and then the the, uh, the government said that uh, the the contract that they were given two hundred million dollars at the time was revoked. The company left, and then they tried to th- sue them uh, because they're like, "Look, you guys forced us out. That's not fair." The the mayor of that city and the Bolivian government uh, 
they like this is it was it was brutal. It was really bad. It was all about the privatization. They were trying to get water, uh, pay have people pay for this dam so that they could uh, gouge the prices. And the problem was is that it raised the prices so high people couldn't afford it. And this is where it kind of turned into this whole sort of uh, unified front against the government. And that's where the idea for the film came from. They were scamming everyone, saying that it was going to be oil. That's what it was. It, but, in, but in the end, they were basically going for the, for the water. Exactly. See, they made a big deal about, like, listening to you, you know, tell the facts of the news story, you know, more of the, the reality of it all. It, it, you can see the personal drama in there. But in the, I don't think the film succeeded if, if it was trying no, to. It, I don't think the film succeeded in making any of that sort of personable or like you have to feel the plight of these these Bolivians because they're being ripped out of their money for their water and their livelihoods and their you know their their basic life source really is is being drained from them for profit and for scam like there's a, there's a lot of production chat. I remember in one of the documentaries I saw on the special features about how authentic the environment was made. I didn't buy that. I didn't. I saw people in ponchos and I saw a couple yep. of po- poor people walking the streets and yep. I saw the crews attending to the actors and the stand-ins and stuff. And yeah, I read that they brought in people from villages that are the more indigenous village villages. They brought they brought yep. them in on boats, but that didn't really pay off because I didn't I, think there was. It I was agree. almost like they were all put together for two or three shots, and then yes. that's all we get of it. Exactly. Josh and I had we were when we were watching we said the exact same thing we're like well the um, the sort of like the mise en scene of, of the shots the establishing shots of the different locations it felt so forced mm, and it just felt did. like uh, really like you have to you know it's like okay I don't I, I don't guarantee that they filmed those areas and made it authentic as possible but the final product when it came out of the editor's yeah. lab it did it did not make you feel that t- typical kind of scope you get when you come to a Bond film like even in the Roger Moore films when he goes to a certain location. Regardless of you know what you think about the story or the plot or more what have you, though even then those Bond films they made you feel like you were in those places. I felt that like we were kind of just like seeing like a slide or quick slideshows of, of things and and when they want I mean wanted to see like uh, the, the action sequence done in a certain way it then cut to uh, what we wanted to see earlier in like the more establishing shots back and forth back and forth. So I, I was just it just seems like it's a mishmash of different ideas that Forster was trying to put together. Mm-hmm. I can see that we're quite eager to talk about this film, really, aren't we? And to, to cut it up. Have you got any more production info, Josh? I was just going to uh, point out that, yeah, like it was all the production, all, all this, this locations you see in the, in the film, um, they were mostly all shot on the locations that they took place. Like they filmed in Siena, Italy. They actually wanted to have another chase to the crowd coming out of a church. But apparently there was a big thing in, with, with the locals there that it wasn't they would want to show like violence or something in, in the church because it was sacred, right? So there was all these things. I actually talked about Amy Winehouse and the, and, and whatnot and David Arnold's score. In terms of the art direction, um, we have Peter Lamont. His last film was Casino Royale, and then he retired after 18 Bond films. So then we have this guy David uh, Dennis Gassner coming in. And apparently, um, Forster wanted him to emulate the Ken Adams style, while at the same time using, in his own film and cinematography, um, his own uh, filmic cinematography um, objectives to give that real, realistic, gritty look. He wanted Gassner to create sets that kind of were very traditionally Ken Adams in style, right. such as the opera se- opera yeah. house sequence. Yep. And then you also have, of course, the big um, the, hotel? the waiting room in the, in the hotel right. in, 
at the end. Yeah. Very much a Ken Adams. Almost reminded me of the Goldfinger uh, rompus room in uh, at the uh, lodge in at the, at the lodge. What's it called? The stud at Kentucky. You know where oh, he yeah. gasses all the gangsters. Yes. Yep. Very similar kind of set design there. But of course, editing was so fast and the pace was too fast that you couldn't really get stock and feel yourself there. And we come back to that again, I'm afraid. Is it also worth mentioning that this is actually the shortest Bond film? Yeah, it's also probably the most violent Bond film as well. It has the biggest kill count, apparently. Uh, I was double-checking that. I don't know if it does, but it's definitely... Really? Um, no. I, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering Spy Who Loved Me, and there's just nothing but like yeah. Stromberg soldiers that just get killed shot after shot after shot. Oh, yeah, on, yeah. The, on the super tanker. Maybe it does have the biggest kill count. I don't know. I, I'd have to think well, about it. Like, I have some totals here. Uh, okay. Oh, okay, cool. Well, Quantum of Solace has 31. Uh, the highest one is Spy Who Loved Me. It's 147. Okay, yeah, there we go. Yeah. You Only Live Twice is 196. Oh, that, that kind of makes oh, sense. Sure. But that's total. Bond killed 21, apparently. Uh, and the others killed were 175. There you go. What's yeah. your source? What's your source? My source <laughs> is a little birdie uh-huh. uh, on uh, the Guardian. Ah, well, good. <laughs> the Guardian would know. It's a pretty, it's a pretty decent publication. You got to trust it at least until they prove them wrong. Exactly. It's not the Daily Mail, right? Yeah. No. No, it's not. Some initial facts about the production to give it a kind of a more Cubby's Corner feel. Um, Bruno Ganz, a German actor, best known for playing Hitler in Downfall and also appearing in many, 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 many terrible memes. He was originally cast to play Dominic Green. Hmm. Dominic Green, played by Matthew O'Merrick, which is a fun, here's a fun Bond fact. Matthew O'Merrick, who played Dominic Green, played the son of Michael Lonsdale's character in Munich. Oh. And of course, Michael Lonsdale played Hugo Drax in Moonraker. Right. Uh, Apparently, uh, Dominic Green, according to uh, Elmeric, he modeled his performance on the quote-unquote the smile of Tony Blair and the craziness of Sarkozy, uh, the latter of whom he called the worst villain the French ever had. He walks around thinking like he's in a Bond film. wonder what he thinks about Macron. Hmm. It, do you think it was on purpose that his name was Green and he's like kind of an eco-terrorist? Yeah, I think there's a, I think there's a play on that. So I'm like, I, feel, play, I feel like yeah. I got a concussion from being hit over the head with symbolism there. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much the notes that I have on Kwame Salas. Uh, how did it turn out in, uh, in the box office, Scott? All right, well, Quantum of Solace got its premiere on the 28th of October 2008 and was released in the UK on the 31st of October, worldwide between the 7th and 14th of November. Its budget, as you said, uh, was about uh, £256 million, so 256 according to like 2016 numbers, okay? Uh, yeah. Its domestic box office pulled in $189 million and worldwide 661 million but in terms of its return on investment which we always come to to discuss the lucrative nature of these films this is the 24th most lucrative so it's at the absolute bottom of the list yeah. poorest performing film in the whole history of the franchise at 150 percent dollar for dollar 157 percent dollar for dollar so yeah that's an interesting fact on its own so in terms of answering your question, what did the critics think? What did the audiences think? You know, they, they weren't really that much into this. Yeah. But <clears throat> I got a couple of reviews. Um, 
we can start with Ebert, see what uh, our friend Roger thought just before he passed away a couple of years after this. Oh, yeah. Uh, this is a review from the Chicago Sun-Times, November 11th, 2008. Okay, I'll say it. Never again. Don't ever let this happen again to James Bond. Quantum of Solace is his 22nd film, and he will survive it. But for the 23rd, it's necessary to go back to the drawing board and redesign from the ground up. Please understand, James Bond is not an action hero. He's too good for that. He is an attitude. Violence for him is an annoyance. He exists for the foreplay and the cigarette. He rarely encounters a truly evil villain, more often a comic opera buffoon who hired goons in matching jumpsuits. Quantum of Solace has the worst title in the series, Save Never and Ever Again, Never Say Never Again, words that could have been used by Kent after King Lear utters the saddest line in all of Shakespeare, Never, 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 Never. <laughs> the movie opens with Bond involved in a reckless car chase on the tollway that leads through mountain tunnels from Nice through Monte Carlo and down to Portofino in Italy, where Edward Lear lies at rest with his cat, Old Foss. I've driven that way many a time. It is a breathtaking drive. You won't find that out here. This chase, with Bond under constant machine gun fire, is cut so quickly and so obviously composed of incomprehensible CGI that we're essentially looking at bright colors bouncing off each other, intercut with Bond at the wheel and point-of-view shots of approaching monster trucks. Let's all think together. When has an action hero ever, even once, been killed by machine gun fire no matter how many hundreds of rounds? The hitmen should simply reject them and say, no can do, boss. They never work in this kind of movie. <laughs> that would be refreshing. This chase has no connection to the rest of the plot, which is routine for Bond, but it's about the movie's last bow to tradition. In Quantum of Solace, he will share no cozy quality time with the Bond girl, Olga Kurlienko. We fondly remember the immortal names of Pussy Galore, Xenia Anatop, and Plenty O'Toole, who I have always suspected was a drag queen. In this film, who do we get? Are you ready for this? Camille. That's it. Camille. Not even Camille Squeal, or Camille Miami, or Miss O'Toole's friend Camille Shaft. Daniel Craig remains a splendid Bond, one of the best. He's handsome, agile, muscular, dangerous, everything but talkative. I didn't count, but I think M, Judy Dench, has more dialogue than 007 here. <laughs> Bond doesn't look like the urge to peel Camille has even entered his mind. He blows up a hotel in the middle of a vast, barren, endless Bolivian desert. It's a luxury hotel with angular W Hotel-style minimalist room furniture you might cut your legs on, and a bartender who will stir or shake you any drink. But James has become a regular bloke who orders lager. Who are the clients of this highest of high-end hotels? Lawrence of Arabia, obviously, and millions others who hate green-growing things. Conveniently, when the hotel blows up, the filmmakers don't have to contend with adjacent buildings, traffic, pedestrians, skylines, or anything else. Talk about your blue screen. Nothing better than the azure desert sky. Why is he in Bolivia? In pursuit of a global villain whose name is not Goldfinger, Scaramanga, Drax, Lashif, but Dominique Green. What is Dominique's demented scheme to control the globe? At this, as a start, the fiend desires to corner the water supply of Bolivia. Oh, no. This twisted design, revealed to Bond after at least an hour of death-defying action, reminds me of the famous laboratory mouse who was introduced into a labyrinth after fighting his way for days through baffling corridors and down dead ends. Finally, finally, parched and starving, the little creature crawled at last to the training button, hurled his tiny body against it, and what rolled down the chute? A licorice gumball. Dominique Green <laughs> lacks a headquarters on the moon or on the floor of the sea. He operates out of an ordinary shipping warehouse with loading docks. His evil transport is provided by forklifts and pickup trucks. 
Bond doesn't have to creep out on the ledge of an underground volcano to spy on him. He just walks up to the chain-link fence and peers through. Green could get useful security tips from Walmart. There is no Q in Quantum of Solace, except in the title. No Miss Moneypenny at all. M now has a male secretary. That Judy Dench, what a fox. Bond doesn't even size her up. He learned his lesson with plenty. This Bond, he doesn't bring much to the party. Daniel Craig can play suave, and he can be funny, and Brits are born doing double entendre. Craig is a fine actor. Here, they lock him down. I repeat, James Bond is not an action hero. Leave the action to your Jason Bournes. This is a swampy old world. The deeper we sink in, the more we need James Bond to stand above it. So, interesting that Ebert seems to want his Bond to, to be more tongue-in-cheek, doesn't he? More playful, like... Like he wants what Connery, Connery. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he wants it to be more escapist and less kind of edited like the Jason Bourne films that he calls out. So I guess he doesn't like the Bond has turned into this real driven action hero. But, you know, if you fast forward, I'll just read you a little bit of this guy here, Mick LaSalle, a couple of days later in the San Francisco Chronicle, who I remember reading when we looked at Gold and Goldeneye. If you were expecting a series of James Bond masterpieces, you'll be disappointed by Quantum of Solace. After the heights of Casino Royale, the series falls back into routine with this above-average thriller, filled with over-the-top action, familiar Bond atmosphere, and a story that's impossible to follow. And why bother, anyway? Daniel Craig is still the coolest man in the universe. Well, that definitely helps. But Quantum of Solace almost never slows down. It should slow down more than it does. It provides no moments to savor, no memorable interludes, no scenes between characters to speak of, and no lines of pithy dialogue to look back on fondly. In overall feeling, it's not unlike the middle film in a trilogy. We're thrown right into the action. There's lots of commotion throughout, and it ends, not prematurely, and yet without a feeling of absolute completion. Still, three major elements tip this movie's balance into the plus column. There's first of all the ineffable Bondness of a Bond movie. This can't be discounted. When Bond walks through a barren, rocky landscape wearing a tuxedo and a bloody shirt accompanied by a beautiful young woman, the tableau lights up the mind with memories of other movies. This might be the least glamorous Bond movie ever made, but in its style, its visuals, and its production, it feels like one of the series. That's important. On a more tangible level, Quantum benefits from imaginatively conceived action sequences and from a director, Mark Forrester, who knows how to film them. Instead of lazily relying on shaky camera to impart excitement, Forrester uses montage. His shots are quick and artfully assembled. Take a look at the opening car chase again, which gains all its energy through vigorous cutting. This is a director willing to do the actual work of building a sequence. Finally, there's Craig, who is at least the franchise's second best Bond, a real actor who imparts a depth of meaning to seemingly throwaway lines. The filmmakers take care of the trappings. They make Craig look like Bond. They place Craig in the Bond clothes, next to the Bond women, and in the Bond location. And then Craig does his part by playing Bond as a man, not as an idol. So there's an in-between type of re- review that sort of bridges, I think, what yeah, yeah. what Ebert was saying about it being a failure. Well, I think with some of the stuff that was mentioned there, it, 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 I think it sums up like what I said before. It's like it was impersonal. Mm. Well, yes, uh, yeah, it does. You're you're absolutely right. And and check this one out. This is my this will be my final touch. Um, mm-hmm. This is from ten days ago. Okay, in GQ magazine, Jonathan Dean, senior writer, and all of this is making me wonder. If this film will, like Honor Majesty's Secret Service, come to be regarded and lauded in the days and months and years to come, I'm just wondering if maybe people will look back on this differently because it already seems as though people are starting to look back on it differently. Here's what Jonathan Dean writes uh, in Sunday Times Culture. He's a senior writer for Sunday Times, and this is published in GQ just a couple of weeks ago. Not even. 
Bond is Quantum of Solace. Never has 007 been so pissed off as he is here, and it's that fury and drive, a passion to get to the person who killed the love of his life, Lind, in the previous film, Casino Royale, that marks Craig's second outing as his best. Until he came along as the spy, the franchise very rarely nodded to events that happened in previous movies, but that sort of stop-start approach to storytelling simply doesn't wash anymore in the era of mass-extended franchise universes like the Avengers, Harry Potter, Star Wars. Quantum of Solace predated most of that connectivity, so maybe it was just ahead of its time. For the whole of Mark Forrester's brilliant fretting film, Craig wears a scowl throughout what are very underrated set pieces. Opera by the Lake, Exploding Energy House, Desert Plane Crash while Olga Kurlyenko is a smart and strong female accomplice. It'd be a pretty cold bastard who didn't want revenge for someone he loved, says Dench's M, and bloody hell, they've actually dedicated an, entirely f- an entire film to that one. It's the strangest Bond yet, but very possibly the best. Now, you know, I'm only giving you a couple paragraphs of what, of what he was writing, but there seems to be, and may- maybe this, maybe it's a bit of amnesia here, you know, maybe today's writers don't remember Bond the same way, and so they're not thinking of it holistically. Yes. Well, it's probably it's like another. It's probably because in so many, it's like another generation of reviewers. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. They, and so, for example, like you know, we remember watching certain Bonds, like you know, in the '80s and '90s, and so these guys, I don't know how old these reviewers are, but they probably have a similar, same similar thing. So then they're kind of pigeonholed in, in another feel, right? So then you're going to have mm-hmm. another generation of people like, you know, in 10 years, and they'll be watching, the, they'll remember when they were kids watching these ones when they grew up with. So then they have a different sort of feel right off the bat with Bonds, mm-hmm. I think. But, yeah, you're right. And you're right. I wanted to mention, though, that um, Olga Kirillik, I loved her character, actually. she's what she was. I really liked her in the sense that she was a strong character and you and even like M was like I, I totally understand what she wants to do and she was good about it I I thought she was pretty good um, with her sort of revenge and it wasn't she wasn't over the top and annoying I actually thought she was okay mm-hmm. well, I, I don't disagree with you I thought she was really good I thought she had some yeah. really good scenes and I think perhaps one of the things that does work in this story for me is how her character arc is is used by Bond yes, spiritually, exactly. and I use that word loosely yes, spiritually yeah. because that's kind of what he needs. He needs he needs it to have an example of how to follow a revenge out. Yeah, and that and that was I think that was actually one of the better parts of the film that made it yeah. uh, mm-hmm. what it was. Because again, you know, there's a few things that I'm not super on board with, with this film, but that was I feel like a, a redeeming factor for sure. It right, was Josh. Not, it was sorry. Go ahead. No, no, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't trying to interrupt. I thought that was you done. My 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 audio <laughs> cut on this end. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I took a beat apparently. <laughs> oh, what were you going to finish up, or was that it? No, no. That that was that that was basically it. Okay. Yeah. I was just going to say, Josh. It sounds then like we are dancing all around this story. All we need to do is talk more about it. So so let's try to get this done, guys. I don't think this is going to take us too long, really, to go through the beats of the plot and talk about some yeah. scenes we liked and didn't like because we got a lot more to get to. So Josh, plot summary, hit us. For our Quantum Solace episode, I decided to present my summary in the style of director Mark Forster. Mm. Ahem. We see a cliffside highway? Italy, maybe? I think it's a car chase. Yep, it's a car chase. Hey, there's Bond. Oh, shit, there's a tunnel. There's a big truck crash. (laughs) Bond lost his door. Machine gun fire. Those poor Carabinieri. That's a terrible, terrible death. You go, Bond. Construction site. Machine gun fire. Cool angles. 
cool action shots, beautiful scenery. Whoop, Bond tra- grabs his machine gun, game over for Batty and, El- and the Alfa R- Romeo. Hey, we're in Santa Italy. It's pretty. Bond's car comes to a stop, and it's Mr. White from the end of Casino Royale, all bound and gagged to the trunk. Cue the credits. Lots of sand. Jack White and Alicia Keys not making much sense, but cool visuals. Seems to be a theme with this movie so far. Credits <laughs> completed. Mr. White being interrogated in the cisterns of Siena below. On the surface, horse race. It's pretty, and there's a big crowd and lots of pomp. It keeps cutting back and forth. Mr. White is unfazed. M is determined. They ask him who he is working for. But the real question is, who is working for him, right? Mm-hmm. Mitchell, mm-hmm. M's bodyguard, pulls out his gun and shoots one MI6 operative. And then M, plot twist. Mitchell runs. Bond pursues. Chase, horse racing. Chase, horse racing. Daniel Craig mm-hmm. being a beast, owning that parkour. Someone in that crowd gets shot. Terracotta rooftop jumping. Fight! Fall through skylight, followed by confusing as all hell sequence of Bond and Mitchell trying to get a gun with very much difficulty. Bond is literally hanging by a thread slash rope and fires his PPK. Blam! Back in London, Bond arrives at Mitchell's apartment, I think. Yes, it is. It's very vague and convoluted, but the holograms tell them that Mitchell had a financing connection to a Brit named Slade in Port-au-Prince. Thanks, holograms. Bond goes to Haiti, <laughs> finds Slade, and fight! Boom, pow, crash! Is this a born movie? Carotid artery, femoral artery, Slade bleeds out. Before you can say co- coincidence, Bond easily takes Slade's place for some meat. We are introduced to Camille Montez, the heroine of this tale. She picks Slade Bond up, and they are driving somewhere. She gives Bond a briefcase. Some big guy in a motorcycle is following them. Bond opens the briefcase. It's a picture of Camille and a gun. Uh-oh. Camille pulls out her gun, but Bond is Bond and bails in. She drives off. Bond hijacks motorcycle from said big guy and follows Camille to the bad guy's lair. Camille meets with villain Dominic Green. He's charming and so, so French, but also creepy. She slept with him. You? Also, why would she return to the man who tried to have her killed? It's complicated. Not too complicated, as it turns out. Green hands her over to Medrano, a Bolivian general in exile who lost the last revolution and happened to done some very bad things to her family. Hey, look at that big burn scurrying on her back. That couldn't be a reminder, could it? Camille, under guard of Medrano, heads back on a small boat to Medrano's yacht, but Bond saves the day. Hyper-intense boat chase. Camille has her shot at Medrano, but Bond comes to her rescue, her rescue and knocks her gun into the water yeah. because Medrano has plot armor. More action we can barely see. How did the anchor make the bad guy's boat flip over? And man, that old wooden fishing boat has some oh. long-lasting durability. Wow. Yeah. It truly is a guardian of the stars. See what I did there? I translated the name of the boat to English. <laughs> Camille is knocked out in the action. Bond drops her off, but his casual business card move to Green's man prior to all this, all this tracks Green and Co. to Brigens, Austria. We're about to attend Tosca on a floating opera stage. Bond sneaks in with a tux and a jumping and jumping some guy in the bathroom. Natch, he gets a hold of the baddie's special package. Uh, I mean, his miniature earphones. Hmm, the weird opera does its thing, kind of the love child of Ken Adam and Stanley Kubrick. The earphones suddenly turn on and various baddies are talking. Have they no consideration for those who want to watch the opera? Sheesh. Bond gate crashes this evil get-together, and it's pretty funny as he takes pictures of these well-placed operatives in the government. In the government operatives? Getting up, operatives? Oh, oh, good one. Go. In the government getting up and revealing himself to his camera. Yes, very well-trained. But Mr. White would prefer to watch the show and remain seated. Green is one of the bolting baddies, and Awkward runs into Bond. There's a standoff, a stare-off. There's a chase. Shootout, intense images of the opera intercutting back and forth. It's cool, I guess. Bond throws some guy off the roof, but he's okay because he lands on Green's car, but one of Green's men shoots him. Never mind. Not so lucky after all, I guess. 
Bond needs to go after Green, but M doesn't like that. He killed no M. It was Green, not Bond, one of Guy Haynes' bodyguards. Haynes is some name that's supposed to mean something to us, but he barely has a minute of screen time. <laughs> but we're made, to, we're made sure to know that he's important. Important enough for bon M to freeze Bond's account and restrict his movements. Burn. Bond heads to Italy and tracks down Mathis, the guy that he thought betrayed him in Casino Royale. The agent, secret agent is not happy with seeing Bond again, but his girlfriend is kind of cool and tells him to go with Bond to Bolivia. <laughs> Thanks, cool girlfriend. Meanwhile, Green has made a deal with the CIA. <laughs> hey, if, hey, it's that guy. It's the sheriff from Stranger Things and Felix Leiter. The CIA boss is okay with Green messing up Bolivia as long as they got their oil deal. Yeah. Meanwhile, Bond and Mathis have some nice Bonnie moments on the flight to Bolivia. Bonnie where Mathis, <laughs> that, was, that wasn't even intentional, but Jeff pointed that out. Thank you, Jeff. That was good. Um, <laughs> but apparently um, Mathis has a con connection with the police in Bolivia. At the airport in the Bolivian capital, I forget, I forgot the name of it. Uh, La Paz. They, it La Paz, you. thank you. It forgives you. Thank you. They meet Just Fields, a pretty redhead in a trench coat from the UK consulate. She demands Bond to come with her directly to the embassy. Bond is, of course, not intimidated and seduces her with confident throwing of the hotel room keys. Now they're after Green's fundraiser. Hey, Camille, is there in, is there in Green? Tries to kill her again, but Bond interrupts us. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Just Bond Fields is left in small talk. We meet the chief of state police, who is Mathis's friend. He seems trustworthy. Bond makes Camille out of the fundraiser. Green's man Elvis, yes, that's his name, a cross between Floyd from Dumb and Dumber and the Eagle from Muppets, goes after them, but just feels accidentally trips him. Uh-oh. Will there be any repercussions for that? She even knocked his toupee off. Even more, uh, oh, Bond and Camille get pulled over by the cops. He has to open the trunk, and Mathis is in there? Is he dead? No, he's alive. No, he's dead. I think so, but not for long because the cop takes some shots at Bond and Bond uses Mathis as a human shield, or so it seems. It's kind of confusing. Yeah. Mathis is dying. He tells Bond to forgive himself and Vesper. Uh, Bond honors his friend by stealing his money and leaving him in a dumpster. <laughs> That's the intelligence biz for you. I was going to say, would you call that a hair-raising fight between Elvis? Literally? <laughs> I don't know. I guess literally you would have to. Because, you know, yeah. Hair goes missing. <laughs> hair came off, yeah. Camille and Bond then head out to see the land that Green had bought in the desert. They charter the plane from Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom to do so, but they run into the Bolivian Air Force, which consists of one modified propeller plane fighter thingy. Yeah. There's a helicopter, too. Oh, fun fact. The helicopter pilot is Spanish director uh, Alfonso Curran. Hmm. We get some crazy airplane action with maneuvers and explosions and all the fixings up until the moment where Bond and Camille are free-falling into a bottomless pit. But the parachutes have amazing timing and open seconds before they hit the ground. They find lots and lots of water. Lots of water. Green doesn't want oil, he wants water, and seems to be stabilizing the Bolivian government to scan the new government and the CIA. My goodness. Bond and Camille walk out of the hole and into the desert and come across some Pueblo-strewn town where everyone is thirsty. It's very National Geographic. Mm. Luckily, just as they are headed into the town, the bus arrives. Woo. Back in the capital, Bond returns to the hotel and finds them there with her men and just fields gold-fingered with oil. We hardly knew her, but Bond wants her honored for her duty. Strawberry, Is that what it was? Strawberry oil fields forever? <laughs> and M kind of lets Bond escape, after Bond beats up her men in the elevator, of course. She's fed up with Green, this quantum organization, and Guy Haynes' influence over the government. Politics, as you can see, are murky. Bond reaches out to Felix Leiter, and they meet in a bar, of course. It's a trap, but Leiter lets Bond know where Green, Medrano, and the chief of police, that rat bastard, are meeting. Bond escapes before the CIA hit team arrives. Leiter shrugs that Stranger Things guy. 
Bond tracks down Camille, and they come across a solar-powered hotel in the desert where Medrano and his chief of police are being served some crevezas by Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter. But before he can have his beer and pleasure, too, Medrano must endure Kareen and Elvis in the Ken Adam-inspired meeting room to make his deal. Camille sneaks in. The police chief takes his leave, assured the deal will go down, and Medrano is bullied by this pipsqueak with extortion, of course, to hand over the money. Medrano relents, thinking about the beer waiting for him in his room, and gives Green the money. He returns to his room and tries to rape Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter because he's fucked up that way. Meanwhile, Bond avenges Mathis and kills the police chief and, and his motorcade. Breaking into the complex, there's a shootout with Green and his men, and things start exploding. Fuel cells, I tell ya. Dangerous things. Lots and lots of explosions. Green and Bond fight. Camille saves a girl and fights Medrano. Green pulls a Max Zorn with an axe but is not fast enough for Bond and as he manages to cleave his left foot. Bond gets the upper hand. Elvis shoots a fuel cell and gets blown up. Good job, Elvis. Camille kills Medrano and Bond decides to spare Green. He races to find Camille who's having a terrible flashback to her past. He consoles her as the place burns around them. Green stumbles onto the desert floor, limping pathetically. Fortune favors the brave, however, and the fuel cell serendipitously appears to, for him to shoot and blow their way out of there. Bond, that is. In the end, Green is left to wander the desert, but Bond leaves him some water oil. Hashtag, that's for just fields. But Quantum takes him out just as he took a swig. Camille and Bond part ways. Love is not in the stars for them. Felix Leiter gets a new job, and Jeffrey Beam gets transferred to some small town where he has to worry about other things and spoiled brats. But last but not least, M finds a guy who poses Vesper's boyfriend somewhere in Russia. Yes, her boyfriend wasn't held hostage nor killed. He was working for, for Quantum all along and was working his charm on some Canadian secret agent played by the lady from Castle. Bond drops the deets for both of them. Canuck agent politely excuses herself, of course, and Yusuf there has to deal with some serious interrogation. Bond gets his Quantum solace, so to speak, and dumps Vesper's necklace in the snow. Mm. Cue gun barrel sequence. What? Isn't that how it's supposed to start? Whatevs. Nice work. I liked I liked your Mark Forrester take. I enjoy the montage plot summary. <laughs> yeah, montage plot summary. Yeah. Now you know the rest of the story. Yeah, it's good. And now you know the, rest of the story. Yeah. It is. It is funny, isn't it? Like how the Canadian agent like thanks Bond as she <laughs> as she leaves. Yeah, it, it's pretty funny. That's uh, Stana Kadic. She's a Canadian um, actress. Yeah. She's on Castle. Yep. And she was also <clears throat> on Twenty Four, like in the fifth season. Yeah. I I think. Hmm, cool. Didn't know that. Yeah. Yep. Right. Well, there you go. That's the that's the plot. And, you know, we, we're talking about the acting. We're talking about the story. We're talking about the atmosphere for our scoring. But right. let's just jump into it, guys. The beginning. Yeah. Uh, okay. you want, so, do you want to do the pre-title sequence? You know, this, this I find the beginning to talk about the beginning of this film really challenging because we go yeah. from pre-title to Haiti yeah. in 18 minutes. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, okay, so, so much that happens here. This is the thing. So for me, like, again, um, Craig Craig's Bond equals power, and this is the, the the difference is like now because now this is actually like a sequel, right? So this is like a revenge movie, and it's a sequel, which Bond movies don't usually get the sequels, right? So it's a little different, and it takes place almost immediately or very shortly after, um, you know, Casino Royale, right? So it's interesting because he's just hell bent on leather seats, in a, you know, Austin Martin. Mm-hmm. Aston Martin, but uh, he's just—it's all power, right? And like, you can just see his face; like it's just like you know, um, car, gun, uh, aviator sunglasses, car, gun. Like you just go back and forth; those kind of shots. 
But he's just, uh, you know, he it, the, the door getting blown off doesn't even phase him. That's why I was saying, like, the car chase blows the doors off all the other ones because it's just so loud. That's the other thing. As I noticed the sound effects, it was super loud and, and uh, it just sort of jarred you, which I think was the point. But it's just like, whoa, what's going on? Is this yeah. fun? I tell you what, man, it's, it's, it's a scene like this, though. No, it's just all the, the details you're sharing. A scene like this reminds me of just how badly I'd be doing in a situation like this. Like just last week, you know, my car mat got stuck underneath the accelerator and I nearly like shit myself. Like I, if, if my door got, if my door got blown off by like a machine gun, Bond doesn't even flinch. He doesn't even right. blow, he's like the Hulk. He doesn't even blink his eyes. And that's a little bit uh, silly. Like although yeah. Roger Roger Moore did drive a car that was cut in half, if I remember but correctly. But would also be adju- adjusting his tie or something like that while it's been a spin around. Yeah. yeah anyway well it, the only my thing with this is that it bond was just too like it's like he knew it's like this was the holodeck and star trek and he just knew this level really well that's a great comparison actually yeah it does feel like he's just going through the motions of a practice isn't he it's like it's like a video game level where it's like oh you know what i got 80 percent done mm-hmm. i want to do 100 percent. so it's like this is like the third time he's done this like level he also <laughs> seems a little bit bored doesn't he yeah that's what i mean it's like Wow, so there's you like I understand that like you know you're good at your job, you kill people, you know you have a double O license, but like your door just got ripped off your your, your car and mm-hmm. you're almost over the edge. Like you got to show some kind of emotion. Mm-hmm. I understand that that's also part because he's like he's just he's got a tunnel vision, pun intended, um, mm-hmm. for Vesper's death. So I get that, but man, it was it was crazy. <laughs> I um I just felt that like. I don't know. It's just you couldn't make anything out in that sequence whatsoever. Yeah. Like I, I enjoyed some of the cool like establishment. When the thing started, I kind of liked the, the succession of different montage of shots to occur. But then I kind of hoping it would kind of rein itself in and then give us a much more clearer yeah. picture of what was going on, right? And maybe there was a moment of Craig reacting that was cut from the final film. But I mean, this is the final product, right? So we have to, to judge it on those standards. I keep, and I, the thing is, I keep uh, beating this dead horse that I, I say is impersonal, is that because he has no emotion, almost, and then, you know, you see the the cops die, and the, they go over the edge. That was and, terrible. And, 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 yeah, it's terrible. And, like, they just, like, it's just like, yeah, yeah, okay, they're dead. But it's not like, you know, okay, normally, you know, people don't care if it's, like, the villains, but, like, these are two just carbonary guys that just get, like, they're just screwed. And, like, there's, the way it just feels super, like, cold, like, what? It felt thematic, though, I think, it in does. terms of the, of, this, of the story, because those guys dying, because it feels like all the government, like the CIA saying, yeah, you can kill Bond. Yeah. You know, as long yeah. as you get her oil, right? Yeah. But I found the movie needed to stretch itself out and let those moments linger for you so that you could get the feel of the theme that Mark Forster and Hagis and co. are trying to present to us. But the movie is so edited in, in, a, in a way that you can't make sense of things. I really think Forster was trying to emulate, um, in my opinion, I forget the name of the director, but if you've seen the film The Constant Gardener, oh, yeah. it's a John Le Carre film, it, it and it's like done it. in the same yeah. kind of. It reminded me a lot of that film, yeah. but the editing in 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 John Le in uh, that in The Constant Gardener yeah. was similar, yeah. but it was done in a better way to make the story yeah. feel feel yeah. feel real to you and make the characters feel real to you. Yeah, I would say that the the way it was filmed, the cinematography is similar too, because like when you have the, those kind of films, like when the Constant Gardner came out, you have a lot of that sort of like blown out kind of like... Uh, over-filtered over, kind, over-filtered of kind of stuff, which I found Quantum of Solace does. And also the one of the big themes with this film is, is like, and if you look with the, the credits and all that kind of stuff, is heat and mm. fire. And a lot of it yeah, was the, like... The, the, and a lot the, of, the elements of course you Because if you look at a lot about. of the locations, they're really hot tropical 
locations like Italy and, and you know obviously in the desert and these kind of things and obviously Camille is a uh, literally a bird victim and all this kind of stuff right so I find that is also part of it too like theme it's almost like yeah Camille is branded with fire and yeah. she is the and she is the avenging force of well, fire right in in, yeah. in in the last sequence of the movie yeah whoa <laughs> what up guys do I don't know how you're going to feel about this, okay? I'm going to throw it out there as something I'm quite happy and willing to do. I feel like our, our conversation at the start, we talked about certain features of the film. I, I'm, I want to touch on certain key scenes and sequences. Yeah, sure. Um, I don't know if there's, if there's a, what, what, I don't know the best time to bring this up, but I know, Jeff, you've done a little bit of work on just, just how much of the world is actually controlled or manipulated by small groups of a few, you know? Like, I know you were looking into some stuff about these types of organizations like quantum and if there's a precedent for it in the world. Obviously, there's a precedent for oligarchy and there's a precedent for, for private practice and all of that stuff. But, I mean, this is a reality that I feel the film does convey very well. Um, yes. uh, do you got anything you want to say on any of that? The stuff that you discovered or stuff maybe you knew before that you can bring in here with your military uh, history knowledge or anything? Well, so what I, what I looked into because uh, I was trying to find a sort of real-life... Um, you know, quantum, quantum, or, or like Spectre, as it would be later called. Uh, so I looked into like you know PMCs, which is like the acronym for like private, you know, uh, military contractors, that kind of thing. Um, and it, what's interesting is so the the quote for like the overall definition of what it is, it's it's um, a private or a private company, the the um, providing armed combat or security services for financial gain. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, what I found with um, this movie. And um, sort of, you could see how the CIA was working with them, trying to get, uh, trying to, you know, they, they had no problem um, working with them. And so there's a lot of, there's, there are some instances where private military contractors work with different governments. What's really interesting, and I'll give you a quote, uh, uh, like a, a number here, I'll give you an example. So this is from 2008, so actually the same year as the movie came out. Oh, great. Um, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence for the United States um, Apparently, private contractors made up 29% of the workforce in the United States intelligence com- uh, community and cost the equivalent of 49% of their personnel budgets. So what's interesting about that, and there's also uh, nothing, uh, something else I want to touch on here, uh, there was this Brazilian geostrategist, uh, Dolion Penta, if I'm saying that right, um, saying, far from the meaning of possible weakening of the national state power and its monopoly and violence, PMCs will actually serve as an alternative form of power application abroad through irregular means. And uh, the other thing, like basically what it comes down to is, is PMCs um, can work for governments and it's kind of like plausible, plausible deniability. It's like, you know, I was saying this to Josh is, um, you know what? I want you to go over there and steal that car. Now I'm a respectable person. I'm going to sit in my high rise building uh, and, uh, you know, watch Antiques Roadshow and you're going to steal that car. And that car's for me, but if you get caught, I'm still going to be in my high rise watching, you know. Mm-hmm. And you get so uh, these 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 kind of uh, you know private military contractors and companies, it gives plausible deniability for for bigger companies. So that's why yeah, the CIA, they, they pay big for things exactly, that are risk high. Yeah. Exactly, and and there's a big problem with that. And there's a lot more. Uh, oh, there's actually another uh, interesting sort of like number here. So. Um, there's this gentleman, his name's P.W. Singer. He was an author of a, a book about sort of corporate warriors about basically the privatized military industry. Uh, in geographic terms, it operates over 50 different countries. 
uh, it's operated in every single continent but Antarctica. Uh, he also stated that in the 1990s, there was the 50 military personnel for every contractor, okay? But now, and I guess I think it was, I don't actually know the specific year this was written, but he said that now the ratio is 10 to 1. And I have a feeling that's probably about 10 years old. Mm-hmm. So that's amazing, the the difference of, of these private yeah. private militaries are, right? And mm-hmm. some of them, again, some of them work specifically for like different parts of the, at least for the American military. And there's uh, like, the, America has a ton of them. Oh yeah, like I was thinking, I was thinking like Blackwater and G four S. Exactly, yeah. and and Blackwater actually changed his name, I guess, to sort of try and make a new brand, so they're nicer. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, I think it's called Acad- Academy, or I don't know how I'm saying that. Is that, but that's they Absidy? changed their name. Absidy, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but um, anyway, so the thing, the interesting thing is that those are the kind of things. Like, I didn't see any one sort of group that's like. A quantum or a specter, but and you wouldn't, right? Realistic. No, yeah. not we can't find that probably on the. We can't Google that and oh, there it but, is. <laughs> Boom. But, yeah, exactly. Well, the, the other thing is, is that I mean, I've read some things. People are joking saying the CIA and stuff like that, which you know. But a lot of these private military companies, uh, there's a couple of Russian ones too, and these are all the ones that are doing all the stuff you, you hear about in Syria and all these different mm-hmm. things, and in the Ukraine. A lot of these, a lot of the countries like Russia and the states. They'll get these guys to go do things that, you know, it looks really bad. But, again, it's plausible deniability and they get the job done. Hmm. Interesting. That, that's good stuff to know, though, because the, the film is, even in its weaker moments, big picture. It's still touching on some things that are, that are real, like, like the Bolivian water crisis that you were talking yeah. about earlier. You know, these things, these things are tangible and they are important, but are they representative in the film? Does it work? You know, and that, that, as a piece of art, we got to ask ourselves that question, too. Right. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if it really worked too well in the film. I, the other yeah. thing is that how, like, I understand that the basis of the idea of what what Green was going to do was based on the uh, Cocobamba water crisis. Mm-hmm. But I feel they didn't have enough sort of um, civilian sort of heartbreak or. or uh, yeah, they, there wasn't any of that. There the was heart- any of that plate. Right. So if they had, I don't, I don't. Yeah, just because you show a couple of shots of some starving yeah. Pueblo Indians, like yeah. in, in, in a, uh, it doesn't do it. In a, um, you know. But you know, guys, like what what does that do? Yeah, that that doesn't just help the story in making that connection and that plot device bigger. It also helps. It also helps anchor your villain as a guy we don't like, and that's, that's something thing. I don't feel we ever really get here. Is is a sense of him being more than a middleman. Again, yeah, exactly. I, I, I guess I'm getting paid by the word here, but I keep saying it. But impersonal, I'm going to yeah, keep saying yeah. that. And that's that's again an example of that. Yep. Yeah, because we because we because we we know this guy reports to quantum, so yeah. we know that quantum exists. We know that Mister White is out there, yeah. who's far more intimidating as a villain. And and I think Matthew Marek, I think he did good in the role. Yeah, like I actually sure. think he's he was a he, he's, he's a good actor. Mm-hmm. But I don't he think is, the, yeah. the this the however the film turned out, it did not let his character live on the screen in my opinion and because we know what he's done in previous human uh, characters and it, you can tell that this was more of the writing than it was him mm. for the character mm-hmm. there are some really nice things in this film though like i i feel like i'm ready just to tell you my score like i i've got oh. a couple of highlighted things i'm not necessarily going to do that but you know there's a couple of scenes I've highlighted as really impressive, and to talk about them now, I'd be fast-forwarding a lot, but is that important? Well, can, can we not just have a freestyle about this? Yeah, I think it's a freestyle. Let's talk about some of our favorite oh, sequences. Of yeah, or, of okay, well, well, well so, I'll, 
I'd like to touch on the opera scene, and I'm sure you guys would agree that it is incredible. It's beautiful, oh, yeah. and it's smart, and Craig is at his best here. This is him actually being an intelligence agent. Like, I can see the brain working. I'm going to call these guys out in this public place. Yes. But, and then how great is it that White doesn't stand up because he's smarter than the rest he's of them? Smart. I'm like, wow, these guys are dumb. Yeah. Yeah, like, I think it's great. It's and I, everyone, it's really it seems. Good. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, it was, and then of course where it goes after that with the color and the editing and the music, everything is great during the run through the hotel, or through the through the opera and, and the kitchens yeah. and all that stuff is awesome. It was, it was that was really good. I, at some part, because I was like on an opera scene in a shoot, I was like, am I watching like a like a a cleaner Fifth Element? Where's Where's uh, Sarah mm -hmm. Brightman? You know? <laughs> it's great. I really like this. I thought this was a like a real hallmark feature of the story. It, was, it stands it out as a sequence that belongs in any great. Bond film certainly, but it's probably one of the best that Craig's involved in in terms of sequences. There are others, but this is yeah. a really nice thing to watch. It works well and it, it, ends, it ends well too. You know, with the clunk on the roof of the the bodyguard. I like it. Yeah, that's absolutely. I would I would agree. And the other thing is that because a lot of uh, Craig and especially in this movie, like a lot of it is just like him physically acting. You know, and, and um, but it's when he has literally the upper hand because he's above them and he's he and he sees them and he talks to them over the mic, and then it's just the reaction of them seeing like oh my god, it was nice how how that sort of play worked out. Yeah, it was really, it was cool. You know, it was also it was, good because it wasn't over overly violent. It was just sort of like it it just it made it made its point. Yes, absolutely. It's also showing too is like for the audience is a great scene because we're with Bond in that moment. We're getting some pleasure, you know, you know of of him. You know, messing around with these guys. You know That's what I mean? Exactly right. Yeah, he's not. Yeah. He's not kind of and figuring it out. He's active and he's in. He's in control. He's so in there's control, a great build yeah. up of tension that leads to like that when Craig, when Bonds walks into the into the foyer or whatever of the opera house, yeah. and then Green is in, right into Green and stuff. That's just a great uh, moment there. It is. And to be honest, now that we're talking about this, I think if if the film had a few more moments like this, it would have been a, a substantially better film. I would say even I would say this sequence could even be better. I think under I think under a better director. Yeah. Well, well yes. sorry, not a better director, but a different type mm -hmm. of director. Yeah. Like I think Martin Campbell or even Sam Mendes could have made that sequence pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, I thought that the sequence itself was really good. I, I would like to have seen more of these scenes written into the script that allowed exactly. for the audience to see to see the big picture of the organization because it yeah. was a reveal for the audience to say look bond is not on to one man anymore he's on to a group of connected people like the siberian oil guy are we ever going to see him again in these films yep. you know yeah. uh, and all these or people that, were, that we were told about oh, no, that's the thing there's all these little, little, you know? little it's almost like uh yeah exactly uh, it, it's underwhelming in certain aspects because you, you, you they're giving us breadcrumbs but they lead to nothing yeah, they do. They really do. I think, too, I think too, this is the result, I think, that these, they might have continued with this, but I think when Sam Mendes got Skyfall, oh, yeah. they decided to do like a one-off kind of story, and they kind of dropped that those the previous two films almost in a way, right? Maybe he It was only yeah. Spectre that kind of connected all the films together in the end. And we have, it, no matter how good or bad Spectre is, it, it's good that they at least tried to, or it at least tries to pull these threads together. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's lame in some ways, but it well, does offer some continuity. It's, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it does. I, I, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, beautifully shot sequence. I just think it could have lasted a bit longer. Yeah. Um, another sequence I actually really liked was, I think all of the, the, the Mathis scenes were, yeah. were, 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 the, were probably the strongest like actor-to-actor -actor scenes well. in the movie. Yeah, exactly. Mathis is excellent in this, yeah. and, and so is M. They're my favorite parts of this film. 
Yeah, M is really good. She play, She really plays oh, it yeah. like she's loyal to her agents, but she also has to play the political game at the same time. Mm-hmm. But she has a conscience, unlike Jeffrey Beam. Now, is that the, is that like the producers kind of saying, you know, the UK over the US, you know, in terms of like morality? I don't know. Right. Well, I also thought it was interesting that, you know, M gets shot, right? So that's something else too. So it's interesting for her reacting um, what's unfolding, but also her getting shot so that it, it brings sort of, I guess, another... Uh, a visceral aspect, you know, because we've never seen, I don't, I, I, we've never seen him get shot, right? No, no, you don't, so, you don't see her under threat like that. No, ever. So that that's interesting too. I thought that was pretty interesting. And then again, with this, this movie is all about like emotion. I find with the Craig Bond, the Craig Bond movies, it's all about like emotion. And does he curb it or does he like lose it? And he goes back and forth sometimes. Mm-hmm. I liked M's reaction to that scene too at the very beginning. You know, like it felt really real. Like you know when, and that's her again, Josh. What you're saying, appealing to her agents, where she says to Bond, like Jesus, you know, or whatever she says. Like they have eight, they have people everywhere, but I didn't think they were in, like here in this room, like in this yeah. catacomb, and they're going to shoot me. Actually, like, that was it's thing, a very human type thing. of moment. Well, I was gonna. That, that was another thing I was gonna mention is that it's another example of MI6 being infiltrated right up to the top mm-hmm. echelon. Mm-hmm. Which, again, like I had mentioned uh, previously in some of the other podcasts, is that the British intelligence community is maybe, again, I think that's kind of a, a throwback to like just how they've been infiltrated like from back in the late 60s, early 70s when they had like the, the second in charge was uh, uh, they found out was like a, you know, a top KGB agent. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Hydra. <laughs> yeah. So and that's another example. Gr- granted, this wasn't like this wasn't actually the KGB or the, uh, the FSB at this time or SVR. This is like another, like, you know, it's uh, it's Quantum or, or Spectre. Did you guys see any symbolic or uh, significant value in the the desert scenes at the end? Because when I was watching it, like, I, f- I feel like I kind of understand on a metaphorical level that this is a wasteland. This is, well, this is where the damage is going to be done or the situation is going to be solved for Craig. He's going to clear the slate here. And so him in an empty environment, in a, in a, in a lifeless place like a desert, I can kind of see that's where they're going with his regrets and all that yeah. stuff. But did that, did that speak to you at all? Because even though I was aware of that, I didn't, I wasn't, re- I mean, the hotel sp- site was awesome. I thought as a physical space, it was really cool. Yeah. But I, I don't know why, but for some reason, these sets, although I know they're impressive, apart from yeah. that opera scene, I'm enjoying what I see visually, but it's not really doing much for me, and I don't know why that is. <laughs> well, yeah, no, because that's they the don't linger. Like No, it's quick uh, editing. That whole it's sequence like yeah. at the end of the film, the climax, oh, yeah. you could have stretched that out in oh, a way yeah. that would build up so well in using those sets and everything. Like I actually really like the end climatic sequence, but it needed to be stretched out and, and longer. Yeah. We also needed to know this police chief as a character. Yeah. So you know what I mean? Like They should have had him be more established so his betrayal means yep. more. So Mathis's death means more. And even like Madrano, he was basically just there to give um, Camille uh, plot momentum, you know? Yeah. Like they could have pulled him up more yeah. too, a little bit. Instead of being, they told us about it as an audience, but that's a one rule of filmmaking that, that makes you fail because you're not supposed to tell us, yeah, you, you're supposed to show, show us. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what yeah, do you think of the what do you think of them dropping Mathis in the dumpster? I mean, I, that's what the script basically does to him. That was excellent. That was okay because Josh yeah. Josh has a good point. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, as I said, I mean that's the intelligence biz, and, and even Craig, even yeah. Bond says he wouldn't uh, mind. Yeah, he wouldn't care. He wouldn't care. Yeah, and, which and, I believe. And and you know that's Spy's death, right? Like yeah. it's interesting how he went from his villa out in Tuscany uh, over to a dumpster, you know, in La Paz. Mm-hmm. 
No, it's true. And, and you, the other thing I was I was going to say, like we were talking about the set, the, you know, the sets there. I also feel like for for the eco hotel there and in all the explosions, they I feel like they didn't for the the grandness of of you know the fight scenes and the explosions and all that stuff. They didn't show enough of it for us for me to care about the destruction of and the grandness of those explosions. Like mm-hmm. it just I was like okay, if you blink for a second or yeah. or or, or so you're distracted. You'll miss Elvis's death too. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, like, I did. I did miss Elvis's death. I was aware. I was aware of him not being there, but I don't remember him like a big scene of him. This is the henchman dying because he he was never built up in the first place. Yeah. No, the no, only thing exactly. the only thing he has that has any kind of uh, moment in the plot to me is, and I think it's kind of a, that kind of established him as a cruel character that they could have built on is that he basically. I assume he's the one that, that drowned Fields in, in the motor oil because she knocked off his toupee and humiliated him. But we don't you know, know, right? Mm-hmm. And, that's the thing. And We're that assuming. gives him a bit of menace kind of under the cu- under underlining a menace to his character. But again, we're not allowed to feel the character. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And even the show off with the police, the showdown with the police chief yeah, yeah. Uh, was, was so quick that you, you, you blink and you miss it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it but, sounds uh, it sounds then like we're all on the same page with respect to how quickly this film moves over its composite parts, and that perhaps it could have done a much better job if it lingered, you know, and and gave us it lingers in the setting. There are establishing shots here for the different locales, but yep. they but it's like the important people within them don't last, and like whether it's the indigenous population that we're supposed to sympathize with, whether it's the uh, the, the the henchmen, whoever it is, right? They they just kind yeah. of jump over them like speed bumps. They really, they really really do. And even like I mentioned, like the scene in Siena where someone gets shot in the crowd or whatever, that's a sad moment. But yeah, they it don't, is, yeah. Oh, they do definitely you do know? not linger at all. It's, like, it's, just, it's just like they, it's like the director had a vision he wanted to do with the film, and I think he lost it in the editing room. Do you know, I wonder, guys, see if you were to set up two TVs, right? And you had Casino Royale running, and then you're ready to hit play as soon as that last scene happens. If it's, Casino Royale, like, would you notice a jolt in the way the films work? I think you would. Probably. Uh, apparently, it's supposed to be an hour or a couple of hours, or I think. Is it, am I wrong? It's, it's a couple of hours because yeah. remember at the end of Casino Royale, I'm recalling because I haven't seen it in a while, yeah. but he has Mr. White. He, he shoots Mr. White in the leg, mm-hmm. and then that's how the, that movie ends. So you assume that then. Well, because he's in the back of the car. And throws him in the trunk, yeah. And that was in Italy, too, where he shot Mr. White. It was like on Lake Como or something like that. And then he drove um, away and then you have the car chase at the beginning yeah. of Quantum of Solace yeah. and that to me shows that there wasn't a long amount of time between those two moments but I can tell right away that watching Golden Eye, like you look at Casino Royale and I remember sequences like the Bond and Vesper talks uh, conversation on the train that goes on for like almost five minutes or more and then you compare that kind of style of filmmaking to this one. automatically to Quantum of Solace oh, with the yeah. opening scene with those random shots of, of everything, you're watching a totally, totally different, different film. film yeah. So they, even though it's supposed to connect to Casino Royale, I think it, it. I think what it should have done is they should have actually got Campbell to do the second film. Yeah, that would because that would have made more sense to me. Because it's, it's. I mean, think about it. It's tough. It's stylistically jarring. It's or really e- even the pre title sequence if they had filmed yeah. that at oh, the yeah, end. Yeah. You know. Yeah, that's a good point. What I think they should have done, which would have been a nice little uh, example of, of of bridging the two together. Like if this is only a couple of hours, like if he had to drive from point A to point B. At least when they crash into his uh, Aston Martin at the beginning, there should have at least been a couple of like gelato cops flying through in the car. Because <laughs> God knows if you're going to stop, 
you know, have a you're tea gonna, break. You're going to have an ice cream. Have the gelato. Yeah. I mean, let's true. be honest. That's the one thing I thought was missing. Like when the door got ripped. <laughs> really off, ruined the film for you, huh? Yeah. yeah. I was like, come on. You got to have, there's got to be at least one sticky container of gelato spilled on the chair. You know, I don't know, don't man. Think, like bond, bond, Bond's the, the kind of guy. Who, well, Craig's Craig's Bond is not the kind of guy maybe who would, but I don't know how any of that would work. It would. I don't know how that would work. I mentioned in my summary about how like the holograms tell Bond where to go. I actually found it really confusing the connection between like Mitchell and then this guy Slate all of a sudden. Yeah. And Slate dies so quickly that he's is another example of like what's going on here, right? And yeah, he almost doesn't matter either. He's he's like a motivator for the plot, but it's not matters. not an important one. That's the thing. Yeah. Like it, there has to like they really needed to make what if people die, or if certain characters, you need to make it so we care. Right? I'll, I'll give kudos to them though. The Bond lighter scenes, even though there was very few of them in this yeah. movie, were was really good. I like that line about um, uh, between Bond and lighter, and Bond says something about you guys are going to go. C- Carve up, you know, South America, and your letters like that's pretty funny coming from a Brit. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's, that was, it's, it is funny. That's a good one. Yeah, I thought that. I thought that was good. And those two have good scenes, even though they're way, way too short. I wonder how Fleming would have reacted to that that particular jibe from Lighter. Yeah, I don't know if he'd take that very well, <laughs> especially Anyways. given the color of uh, Jeffrey Wright's skin. There, look, guys, I, I'm going to uh, I'm going to put the stick in the spoke here, and I'm just going to tell you what I've got going on here. Josh, it's funny you mentioned Zorin, you know, because I, I thought that that green creating a drought, right, and kind of damming up the riverbeds, that was like variations on a, on a theme of A View to a Kill, if I recall. Minus the earthquake, of course. And Yes, of course, but I don't know. <laughs> it felt like a bit more pathos there. Maybe maybe the John Barry score helped. Maybe the, you know, the fishermen in the lake helped. I don't know what it was, but there's, there was something in that, I think, if I remember it correctly, that uh, made me feel worse for the Silicon Valley. <laughs> than I did for these people. And hey man, all those computers, you know, that that affects the whole world, right? Roger Ebert was saying, this plot, that Silicon Valley being destroyed takes the plot, you know, that to me affects the whole world. Mm-hmm. So I agree with Roger Ebert there. You know, there are some good strokes of editing here though, particularly in character moments. I just want to highlight a couple of them and then I'm going to give you my mark for acting and, and all the rest of it. But see when Bond is taken back by M and the film, I just made a note of this, the film slow fades to show his his being apprehended in the elevator, right? But then he, right. there's a snap cut to Bond taking out the agents and the guards. Like it's slow yep. and it's kind of dramatic and then it's boom and you know he and he's done his business when the elevator closes. And, and I quite liked that. And I also liked the little thing that he did when he meets Fields for the first time, but who by the way is completely ineffective as a stop Oh, for I, him. I mentioned was very intimidating. Yeah, the thing yeah. Is she, was she naked under that trench coat? Like, that's what, right. She, like, it's really uh, weird. Like, why did they dress her up like that? And then, but it's funny because when 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 you hear the interview with our grandmother, she she says that or she reckons that M knew exactly that this girl was not going to stop Bond, and it was almost just like you know a packaged bag of sweets for him. Yeah, and I and I don't know because I, I don't think Bond, I don't think him sent that girl. I think the the consulate sent. That's what I think. Right? Yeah, I think that was the other thing. Is like, was was she just saying she's from the consulate, like everyone does when you're a spy, or because I almost felt like she was from the consulate? Because oh, maybe she, I don't know. I kind of I, I kind of thought that she was she was sent there to make sure that Bond stayed put until the well, agents came to apprehend him and bring him off the well, case. Here, here's here's an example of like we don't know because that you know but it's true because i mean you can say maybe she was but i felt that she was definitely ineffectual 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a moment. There was a moment where I almost bought into her, but then she has this weird smile when she's walking yeah. around all cool and calm with him, and I was like, "No, this just doesn't work for me." No, no. She's, exactly. she's a beautiful actress. She's a really striking yeah, actress, great, but great. Uh, she doesn't do very much here. She's just a, a silly girl who who sleeps with Bond and is kind of like, "Oh, I can't believe it's happened." Almost like a, almost like in the books, you know, you got Mary Goodnight, a secretary, who's like, "Oh, I can't believe this almost happens." Like <laughs> she she becomes really really sort of airhead around him, and I, I didn't like that in this type of film. The airhead doesn't work. It's such a contrast to the other Bond girl. It's like, why is she really here? Is she here so. We can't feel sorry for her, as you say, Jeff, because she's not developed. When she dies, she's yeah. not developed. So yeah, why does Bond is. care? Like Bond cares more yeah. about her than Mathis. Like I don't, I don't, I don't get that. Yeah, that's an, exactly. Well, again, that's what when, when she said the line. Like I'm going to go back to this again. Sorry, but uh, but the consulate thing. I was like, man, mm-hmm. yeah, because she doesn't feel like an agent. She's just not. There's nothing about her. Like there's nothing uh, extraordinary about her. There's no. I don't see any tradecraft. I don't see any. Mm-hmm sort of anything behind that facade. It's just sort of like, yeah, she's a trench coat and a pretty face. The only thing she did was like the equivalent of someone on some like spy trip TV series is, oh, trip the guy accidentally, oh, you know? Yeah, like, like, wow. It's like, what you, I mean, that's someone could be handing like a low rent heist, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. This is, it was like Johnny English stuff right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you see their cover. Like, I liked that moment. I felt like there was a little bit of Bond, the, the, the literary character, or even if you want to do what, Ebert does the Connery charm in in this whole cover because she says we can't like we can't change hotels because Bond goes into the hotel says I'm not staying oh, yeah. here yeah. and he yeah. turns around sabbatical. yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's awesome right because then he goes <laughs> we're, we're teachers on a sabbatical who won the lottery, lottery. <laughs> that's all he does the lottery. yeah that was great that, that was, was one of the only moments of character great. humor in the story though yeah exactly the only interlude in the whole freaking movie <laughs> yeah that it, it was good the Mathis visit and the Mathis conversation on the uh, on the plane oh yeah because when he's yeah that's right because when he's in Italy with Mathis and doesn't something doesn't it start with him saying you're not going to drink my wine and then at the end we just see that's, Bond drinking his wine or something yeah yeah well yeah <laughs> and it's really I actually like that sequence like Mathis's girlfriend as I yeah. mentioned I think she's super cool mm-hmm. and she's like telling Mathis well yeah, they you but yeah they they, they tasered you and and jailed you, but then they also gave you this huge villa. So I think you know you're even, you know, and yeah. and, and like Bond's just smiling through the whole sequence because she's clearly on his side. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah, so, very yeah, much. Go, go go work on your tan. Like it was just kind of like yeah, you know. Funny, her name was Gemma, and then like Gemma Arterton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got two questions left before I'm going to give you my scores, and I, I I'm I'm curious to see. I mean, Josh, in your production research did you come across any information about the cutting room floor how much of the film was left on because as jeff says it's a very short film did they have more film scenes or sorry did they have more scenes filmed to flush some of this stuff out that we notice yeah i could find nothing on that uh whatsoever it seems like this was a movie that mark forster wanted to make because a director's cut would be really interesting it it really really would you know what that would be interesting just to see what was left. Okay, well, yeah. fair enough if you found nothing. The other thing I wanted to ask you guys about is how do we feel about the gun barrel at the end? I mean, placement placement as narrative, it makes sense because it's the end of the, well, no, the, the double yeah. story. But what do you think about having a gun barrel at the end of the Craig films? This is my take. So Casino Royale did <laughs> not begin with the gun barrel sequence. Not really. You have that black and white moment. And then what happens is that this movie ends with Bond throwing away Vesper's necklace and uh, you know he's bond now he's he's got over this you know this tragedy this grief for the moment and now he's going back in the role he's, he's like i said he's like you said okay. to him okay. i never left 
So to me, right. if Quantum Solace is the sequel to Casino Royale, then both those films are kind of like the origin story of James Bond okay. put together. So having the gun barrel sequence at the end of the film, it's basically, sense. here we are. James okay. Bond begins, you know what I mean? Yeah, okay, that's cool. I buy into I, that. I, I definitely buy into that's, that. that. That's what I think. No, no, yeah, but it makes sense because it, it probably wouldn't have fit at the beginning. Yeah. Like it, mm-hmm. So, yeah. They I, wanted I, to I, go from Casino Royale to Quantum yeah. Solace, and to open yeah. it, they just went right to the car chase sequence, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like what was he going to – what was uh, – well, the only, the only thing that would have worked because it was actually like a cut was when he shot the guy hanging from the rope. That could have also worked for the gun barrel. Yes, yes, but, it could have, yeah. Which I think maybe, maybe that was sort of like them doing it without doing it, if you know what I mean. I yeah. wanted to really like that uh, sequence because I love how it ends with Bond shooting up. And I like the whole run. And it was the Walter PPK, which was nice too. And, and, and how the guy was trying to get his gun on the scaffolding. Yeah. I thought that was really oh, was a good struggle. What was, a, was a good concept. Yeah. But I found it was edited to shit that uh, I, was, I found it so confusing. And then there was like the CGI skylight. And then there was the ropes and stuff like that. And it was just convoluted. It was too convoluted. But I liked the concept of it. I mean, we're, we're fans watching these films. We're, you know, we're just audiences. But interested to see what Gary Powell, like, and the other the other members of the stunt team would have, would feel about their stuff that they think they're filming, and then how the editor and the director goes and edits it away. Like, are we missing some of the stunt work because the editing yes. decides to do this? Like, would you yeah. feel would you feel a little bit ripped off if if you've put in hours, weeks, of storyboarded planning on these stunts and safety, and then you only get like a second of it? Well, that's the thing, and I, yeah, I, I probably would. And th- this is the thing in two thousand and eight. This style of action editing, like the Jason Bourne effect, mm-hmm. if you will, at first people are like, "This is amazing," and and I I do enjoy that. But you know, after you know the hangover of that style uh, has worn off, or sorry, the the luster has worn off, mm-hmm. then we kind of started to see that it was also a way of of covering holes. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, like yeah. it's almost like a cop out. Yeah. Okay. So so nowadays it's kind of you have to be careful with that because people are so used to it now it's so saturated in and even in TV shows now like even just like a regular like cable show can do that. Mm-hmm. So now we're just so used to it it's kind of becoming blasé. And I think the the this film even though it was kind of like almost at the height of it and almost maybe almost on the decline it 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 didn't work for it in certain ways some ways it worked but overall i i feel like like you were saying here i think it it, it didn't do it justice hmm. i find like most films the grid films anyway should be like a, a fine wine like like a, like a just a really nice thick glass of red wine and you know you can savor it you can just drink it all in but this film to me is almost like it's just a champagne glass a glass full of champagne. It's bubbly. It's you know. It's exciting when you put it in. When when you when when, when, when you drink it in. But in the end, though, you don't have that lingering kind of texture. I guess you could say. Just effervesces away. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Effervescent. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. What did you guys think of? Uh, sorry, I said I had two questions a few minutes yeah. ago. It seems I have another one, but. <clears throat> you see, in in Casino Royale, right? And again, I haven't seen it that recently, so I'm I'm running on memory here, but. I know that that scene with Lashif and Bond, the, the torture scene at the end, which is in the book, it's scripted very well. It's a painful scene. Bond is just literally, you know, weeks from that experience because he's yeah. recovering oh, yeah. and whatnot. But yeah. Yeah. how do we feel about the fact that the interrogation that he does with Green all happens off screen? We never see it. All we have is the the mention of it, the reference of it when Green says, I told you what you wanted to know before he kicks him out the car in the desert. Like, we yeah. don't get to see anything. Now, would Bond not be... 
wanting to save her an opportunity to nail some guy the way he was nailed. Maybe not exactly, but to really punish a guy under interrogation. Or is this him thinking about the greater good? He's not losing his shit because he knows that he's, you know, M's, M is dependent dependent on, on getting the quantum thing figured out a bit more clearly. Like, what do you think about all this? Here's my response to that. So the sequence where Camille is struggling to fight General Medrano and then Bond is fighting Green and then there's the explosions and the fire and all that and Green is hanging from like the gantry or whatever and Bond is about to like is basically grabbing him by the hair um, trying to hold on hold, hold on to him and stuff and looks like he's just going to throw him to his death or kill him or something and then you hear the gunshots and then Green says looks like you lost another one and to me that was the moment where Bond kind of came back to who he was. Because oh, yeah. he lets Green, he he doesn't he stops fighting Green, and then he goes to Camille to show that he does care about other people, yeah. and then he consoles her because she's so probably repressed memories of the fire of her childhood. She's all curled up in a ball, which is reminiscent, if I recall, of uh, Vesper in the shower in Casino Royale. Uh, to me, I just found that was the moment where Bond becomes Bond again, yeah. and then yeah. it, it kind of builds up and builds up and builds up to the final sequence where we get another off-screen interrogation of uh, Yusuf, and and then of course, and then to him telling the results of what Yusuf told uh, mm. told him, and then he throws Vesper's necklace away. So to me, I think that there was a change in his character right then and there, and I, I thought that was a pretty poignant moment of yeah. probably of the entire film, in my opinion. No, that's a good way of, uh, yeah. I, I mean, well, it's I, certainly a good way of, of defending their case for not including an interrogation. Not, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, that's that's how I feel. Yeah. Exactly. But I also, also think less is more. And so I liked how they didn't have to like because there was a lot of stuff they showed in the movie and that kind of stuff. But th- this was a nice sort of change of pace, I guess. And it really was a change of pace. Hmm. I don't know. I I don't know that I can agree with you guys on that. Like I understand where your defense is coming from, and I appreciate it. But if that was the consistent vision on the whole film, but the con- like. I'm wanting more. I mean, a lot of our chat has been, you know, why can't I linger here? Why can't I get more chat with this? Why can't I fill out another 20 minutes? What does it matter, you know, if you go two hours and 10 with this film? Like, I think a little bit more flesh would be good. Yeah. My response was devil's advocate. Yeah, I know. Anyway, look, guys, I'm just going to tell you my scores, and then I'm going to let you guys share yours, okay? Are we ready for this? Are we happy with this? I'm ready. Okay. Um, Plenty pennies. Well, just for <laughs> folks back at home, oh, yeah. we review uh, the story, acting, and atmosphere out of ten money pennies each. Mm-hmm. So, money penny, of course, being Bond's famous secretary, or sorry, M's famous secretary, kind of Bond's, I guess, as well. But this is us giving our scores for story, acting, and atmosphere. Uh, how many money pennies did you give the story? I don't think this will come as any surprise to you because the story, including the narrative, the screenplay, uh, the the treatment on screen of what we see and written and conceived, I didn't think it worked particularly well. Obviously, I followed it most of the time. I I still found the American involvement rather woolly and underplayed. I wasn't quite sure why Felix was really there. He isn't important to this. Simplifying the plot by pulling out the CIA, pulling out the Americans, you have a more 80s Bond villain. I would have have still enjoyed that just fine. A little bit more focus on the villain and his plan. 
and yes. Quantum as an organization. Don't com- don't complicate things with this this greasy CIA South American section chief. Like he's a slimy goofball. I don't need him really. I don't need him. I like him as an actor. Yeah, Stranger Things, great, whatever. But he doesn't need to be here. Felix Leiter could have done something different. We could have name dropped yes. him or had him drinking, and he could have been yeah. on a different Intel job. Yeah, I thought that all of that was was kind of pish to be honest, and it just confused me. It distracted me. I went five and a half for story okay. on for on this, and I know that's low, but I, I really only enjoyed the story that much. I can't pretend I, I liked it more, and I didn't. Uh, I'm in the same uh, I'm in the same neighborhood as you are. Okay, I'm slightly okay. higher, but yeah. but I'm, I'm 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 on the same I guess emotional wavelength in in, in my reaction to the story. Okay, well, and what about uh, what about the atmosphere, Scott? The atmosphere. Um, I liked the atmosphere slightly more. I thought that the set pieces at work worked really well. I was enjoying looking at the film, and I think that's an important feature. Uh, the music isn't great. This is not a great David Arnold score. Uh, no. I still think, I mean, although Casino Royale does more with the orchestra, I still think that maybe if I remember it as a score, Tomorrow Never Dies is more effective in the picture, but we'll see when we get there, you know. This this is a really jarring score. I found it difficult listening through it to find transitional cues for the, for this particular episode because it's it's just more atmospheric, a little more ambient. There's not a lot of melody to this. There are character themes, but because the characters are underdeveloped, no surprise, the score follows suit and it's quite it's tough to get kind of that that palette that you like when you're following yeah. a film, you know. Yeah, I can't think of one memorable cue in that whole movie that's to exactly, be honest with you. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of how I felt, and all of this factors in, doesn't it? I mean, the camera work in some places is awesome. The color spectrum used yep. is really nice in some places. The set designs do work. Like I like the big the big set pieces, but they because they don't linger because whatever it kind of falls a bit flat. I went I went for a six point five on atmosphere because. The, the ones that there are parts of this like the opera that feel like an eight or a nine definitely yes but overall the but entire overall, film experience nah six and a half yeah. uh, I, I didn't it's... I didn't get much more than that and in terms of the acting uh, the acting was good and yes. Craig that was doesn't, the part of the movie in my opinion Craig doesn't demonstrate an enormous range here yeah. and that's not necessarily his fault that's not you know it's what the film asks him to do I think it's I kind of like a wound. Yeah, he is wounded and he's just kind of the one-trick pony for a lot of this. And I like your take on the ending, Josh, and how he comes back to life with the, the consolation of um, of uh, Camille in the, in the fire, you know, that, that works. And the elemental stuff also maybe features into his character writing a bit. His acting is, is good, but there's not a lot of difference to it, which is why that line he gives at the hotel about the change of cover, I like. Which is why his scenes with M, I like, because they're personable. And... You know, I, I, Tanner Tanner was really good in this film, but I felt like Roy Kinnear looked constipated throughout the entire movie. Like, he was always struggling to give bad news. Like, oh, you're not going to like this, but uh, I don't know what I'm doing in this. I'm, you know, I'm out of my depth. Like, he wasn't as good in this film as, as he was in previous ones, if I recall correctly. I think he's really good in Skyfall. And he's also, he has a pretty good presence in Spectre, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. But again, I don't know how much of the acting flop is down on the script. And so Craig... This is my. I'm just putting this out here. I like Craig a lot. Uh, the best actor in this film is Judy Dench. She's a better actor than anybody else in this picture, and yes. it shows. It shows, you know. And so I went six point five for the acting overall. So that that's me pretty low. I appreciate that. It's uh, you know eighteen. 18.5, I think overall. I went six five for acting, six five for atmosphere, and five point five for the story. Because <laughs> it's I, I don't know I, and I feel stupid not stupid 
I, I feel bad, you know, saying that Craig and this mm. ensemble cast is only getting a 6.5, but I don't like what they're doing with the actors here. And yeah. that's that's important, isn't it? Oh, it is. It is. I think you're. I think you. You hit the nail right on the head there. I don't know if that is a story. Maybe I should take half mark off the story and give the acting a seven. But I'm going to keep it the way it is. Five, five, six, five, and six, five for me. Okay. Uh, well, I guess I'll go next. Um, I gave this story a six. I was a little bit generous than you, mm-hmm. but now I think about it. Five and a half is also yeah. a fair review as well of the story. Um, I liked the concept of the story. I think it had an ambition and it, it could have worked. I think if the the final product allowed it to, as we've talked about throughout the show today, linger like in, mm. in certain scenes, certain moments, certain locales. But I found that, like as I mentioned, the holograms talking and telling where people were to go. Like I was jumping, I was like jumping back and forth across the globe, yeah. and I didn't. And I was just trying to, I was just trying to get the momentum of the story and the plot, <clears throat> characters' motivations. And I think they were more driven by the plot established by the outline they wanted for the script more so than the characters' motivations. The only real motivating factor in the whole story from the get-go is what came out, what this takes after Casino exactly. Royale. Yeah. And this is where it just drives all the way through. And then we meet people incidentally on the way, but we don't linger enough to really meet those people and feel them along those ways. We, we, we don't do like roadside stops for a few hours and, you for know, gelato. take in the atmosphere. Yeah. For yeah, we don't get the gelato. Yeah. Yeah. We don't get the gelato. We get like, I don't know, uh, like the, uh, the stale panini, the stale roadside panini. And then we're on our way. You know what I mean? <laughs> Um, that's just how I felt about the, about the story in that regard. And I found the whole thing about the conspiracy regarding the water supply uh, and, and scamming the Bolivian government and, and uh, you know, and pretending that there's oil there, but it's really not. Like, I found that very convoluted and didn't make much sense to me. Um, I also found certain character motivations would make a lot more sense or feel stronger in the film emotionally if we knew this police chief from early in the get-go. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about also lighter about how he's kind of like a side guy to this Jeffrey Beam. It'd be more interesting if Felix Leiter was undercover yeah. working with like Green's division or he's playing the CIA or he's following orders from from the CIA, but he's working on his own and he has his own agency in the story, you know? All we really get is kind of like the Cole's notes of how he got to the position that he is with, with in the regular, in the, in the previous Bond films. Um, yeah, like, I don't know, I just found uh, it was convoluted because it never had a chance to breathe. I'll go back to the wine metaphor. You gotta let wine breathe when you yeah. pour it. If you just drink it too fast, then it's like it's like a champagne, it's effervescent. You know, like it's, it's, it's gone just like that. And that's kind of how I felt. It was blink and you miss it, and then the movie's done. Okay, so what about the acting, pal? Acting, I was a little more generous. I thought Craig actually was really good showing someone who was emotionally wounded. Yeah, and I, I think Craig does a lot in his body language, in his uh, in his expressions. His eyes. His, 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 eyes. his eyes and his expressions. His efficiency of being a, a secret agent at the same time. He never got a chance to really show some, ra- some like, rage. So I kind of wanted uh, it to... We're only told that he has inconsolable rage, but we never really felt it in the in, in, in the film. We felt more he was just like on like almost like he went into robot mode, yeah. Terminator mode, just killing everybody, um, and that's and just barreling through, breaking through. That's kind of what he did in this movie. And we the only kind of emotional connection we can get for Craig or, or how he's possibly feeling is having like as kind of like his familiar as you have Camille, yeah, and she, her whole 
you know, revenge and stuff like that. It's more, it's more grounded in, in, in the political reality of the story. But at the same time, we're connecting to Bond through her. And I think that was kind of what was kind of missing from Craig's performance, I think, is that they gave they gave his um, anger a different... Um, outlet? Outlet, exactly. Yeah. Um, as I, I thought that uh, Matthew Mark did a great job as Green, but again, not shown enough. Um Medrano seems like he could have been a good actor, but we never really got a yeah. piece of him either. Um, I found that John, even though his short screen time, uh, Gianni, um, sorry, Giancarlo Giannini, uh, he did a great job as Mathis, yeah, yeah. and I mm -hmm. felt every one of his scenes. He was good, yeah. He, he commanded every scene he was in. Yes. He was the best part of it for sure. Yeah. You know, guys, you're right. Like, uh, I'm just listening to what you're saying. I, I've got to, I've got to raise that score to a seven. I'm gonna put my, I'm gonna put it up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I am, I am going to do it because, like I said, I wasn't sure if I go with six five or the seven. So, no, it, it is. You're right. It's not the actor's fault, and so I, I'm, I'm dinging them because the story's drowning them. But right, yeah. go ahead. Sorry, pal. Go keep finish up. And uh, yeah, and uh, I found Gemma Artson, like you said, she was a good actress, but she was she giving kind of a paltry but, part, part. Yeah. And M, I agree. Like with, uh, I think with John Carly, I, I would say my if I were to rate uh, the best three actors in the movie, oh, I would put Judy Dench at the top. I then put I would then put. And then maybe John I would Carly. tie um, John Carlo Giannini and Daniel Craig in those roles. Yeah, yeah. But okay. uh, so yeah. your your score overall then seven and a half. Okay, cool. And Jeff, uh, oh sorry, buddy, your atmosphere. Sorry, Josh. My atmosphere. I agree with you. Like music score was weak for for a movie that should have been much uh, deeper and more emotional, yeah. given this given the storyline and you know Bond's state of mind. Um, I can't think of a, thing, a single cue that I can really recall except for some of the music in Port-au-Prince. I thought that music was pretty cool, the boat chase. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the opera house was great atmosphere, but again, we don't absorb it quick enough. Exactly. Like, sorry, we, 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 we don't have a chance to absorb it and really feel it, you know? Like, it goes by so quickly. And the same thing for the final battle at the hotel. We don't really feel those sequences, even though the set design is fantastic. Um, you want to be there more. You want to live in the world of Bond. And again, we're just doing these roadside stops all the way through. Yeah. So overall, I would give Atmosphere six and a half. Yeah. Okay, super. That's that's good. So we're not that far away, really, pal. No, even, um, even I'm almost exactly the same. Okay. Uh, Do you have anything to add commentary-wise? Well, so I was just thinking sort of uh, if I was going to give a metaphor for the film and sort of the story and the atmosphere, it's like going on a really quick business trip in Europe. And like all, it was just like stamping your passport here and you don't have any time to see the sights. Mm. The story again – I gave it a six. Uh, I thought mm -hmm. it wasn't like, uh, and each time I was thinking about it, I was thinking about getting it more and more. I started off at, at seven, seven and a half, and then I kind of went down to a six. It wasn't an over overtly great story, and again, there's a lot of things that we wanted that didn't linger that we think should have. Um, and it's just it, again the whole thing about impersonal, which it's and that's not the acting. The acting I, I was the highest thing that I rated out of the three, um, but there's just. Uh, the story was good, but again, there, there, there's so many things I could have fleshed out. The story is just, it was not, I don't know, it just wasn't what I was, I wasn't feeling it, basically. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I could have, I could definitely give it like a five and a half. I'm being polite with a six. Atmosphere, I gave it a six and a half. Um, it, was, it was okay. Like, again, a lot of things, the atmosphere was good. Like, I liked the, the imagery with the heat and the fire and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate that. Um, and uh, you, it, it, 
I just don't, it doesn't, a lot of it doesn't feel like a Bond movie to me. It feels like another type of action film and some aspects of it. The score as I didn't like, it was like, okay, like I didn't feel, it didn't feel like a, like there was nothing out of the ordinary for me. There was nothing that like really um, pulled me in, in regards to the score itself. Um, I appreciate the locations and what they tried to do, but again, it was so quick. It was like the thing I was saying about the passport is just stamp, stamp, stamp. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Uh, and just because of the quickness of everything, you don't have a chance. Like we were saying, the you know the words like linger and impersonal. Uh, I feel like the atmosphere was there, but it, just because of how that worked, it I didn't it didn't latch on to me. Um, and with the acting, I gave it seven because it's a great cast. And again, like what Josh was saying about, I liked Mathis as the character because when he in his in his scenes that he was in, it really felt like he was like you know. Uh, sort of like the the handler like an old handler of a spy like he's giving him he has a lot of fatherly advice he's a, he's quite the character and he talks to him and bond really listens and, a mentor. And, and a mentor yeah and so that's what i liked about it and so you know the scene when he drops him in the garbage can bond doesn't have enough time to really emote and, and think of these things because he's got to go and that's why that scene when he puts him in the gar in the dumpster it's true like it's, he wouldn't care but he just wants he wants him to keep going, you know, and 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 save the day. So his character, like his acting as that character, was very believable. I really liked him. Bond was good too. Again, with with Craig as Bond, and like I was saying before, Bond equals power in, in these films um, because he's a bigger, stronger. You know, he's SAS. He's not Navy. Uh, you know what I mean? So he's he's a different type of Bond. And again, he's going through you know Vesper dying, so he's really sort of. Um, He's a closed-off individual, like what Josh was saying at the end when they used the, the the barrel scene. That's when he kind of he goes through sort of like a, a change, and, and that that explains it. But through going through the movie acting um, for uh, for Craig, anyways, it was good. And you know, Judy Dench was fantastic. I liked I liked her as the character. It was really interesting, sort of seeing her ups and downs um, emotionally as the character. Because again, you never see M get shot or be any kind of actual danger so i thought that was good also you know jeffrey wright's good um and what was the gentleman's name who was green i forget his name the actor uh matthew O'Malley. yeah he i feel though like he could have like he was he's a good actor but i feel like uh he could have done like they could have definitely done a lot more with his character i think but uh, anyway so long story short uh my acting is seven many money pennies my atmosphere is six and a half and my story is six Right, well, that brings you to 19.5. So I'm 19, you're 19.5, and BFG, you're a 20. And that's... That's a treating for this one. That, we're all pretty close on that. I mean, we not, are. not a lot yeah. of difference. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of difference last time around with Goldfinger either, uh, or really on Her Majesty's Secret Service. In each of the cases, I've been less than you guys, but you guys have actually tied on nearly three straight films. So it must be a roommate effect. <laughs> ah, yeah. Osmosis, yeah osmosis yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway maybe maybe <laughs> not so there you go quantum of solace scoring done well look gentlemen what do you think fleming would have thought about this film i think he might have liked some of the the spy stuff between Mathis and whatnot, because that was one of yeah, his characters. I, I would say that. I, I think he would have enjoyed that part of the movie. Um, <coughs> Pardon me, sorry. I, I just don't know what he would think about that whole uh, lighter uh, about uh, that. That you know, that's pretty funny coming from a Brit <laughs> in oh. regards to the carving up of uh, you know sub subtropical continents. 
I think he probably would have wanted more uh, scenes with uh, Miss Fields. <laughs> yeah, probably. He probably would have wanted another scene or two with her, or at least for... I almost guarantee that he would not have been happy that Bond didn't sleep with this woman. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, oh, he did. Well, no, he slept with Fields, but, Fields. but he didn't sleep with uh, Camille. Yeah, Camille. Oh, sorry, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he would be like, what is this shit? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, one, actually, he has really good chemistry with he doesn't sleep with. I don't get it. Well, uh, <laughs> who, who really knows, you know? I mean, by this time, if he was still alive as an old, old, old man watching Bond at this stage, he would probably have, well, no, he... When did he die? Six. Uh, he would have been like a hundred. He would have been like a hundred in watching this movie. I think oh, yeah. his sensibilities. Uh, I don't know. Would Fleming? Would Fleming have enjoyed this film? No, I don't think he would have actually. I, I, I think he would have seen oh, his character transform into well, yeah. into like a superhero, and that's not exactly. what that's not what he wanted. Exactly. Well, especially even like think about um, Casino Royale too. Like when he's on the rooftop and he runs through the wall, he's mm-hmm. like, that's yeah, cool. yeah. So I keep him coming back to that, but it's true. Uh, it is. Yeah. It's Craig. Craig's Bond is power. Uh-huh. It and, is power. It's power yeah. and it's appeal. It's it's appeal. Sex appeal through power. Exactly. It's not through refinement. It's not through or, caviar. It's not through like Josh was saying, wine and sipping. It's not. It's not that. Yeah. It's not uh, finesse and uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. One thing I, I, one thing I, I, I didn't neglect to mention in Covey's corner, uh, Covey's casket, <laughs> was that uh, Quantum of Solace, the title, comes from a short story in the For Your right. Eyes Only collection that Ian Fleming wrote. Sure does. And, and I've, I got some info on that if you want. Oh, yeah, yeah. because yeah, I want to discuss the, the short story and, and how it possibly in, connects to the film. <laughs> no problem. Well, I'm going to read first from Matt Parker's GoldenEye book, which talks about Fleming's writing of all of the stories and books. Um, in talking about the For Your Eyes Only collection, there's all, there is one very unusual short story in the collection. Uh, Quantum of Solace only features Bond as a framing device for a tale narrated by the governor of the Bahamas about marital infidelity that gives a chilling glam- glimpse into Ian and Anne's relationship around this time. It's based on a story that Blanche told Ian about a Jamaican couple. As payment, he gave her a Cartier watch. Quote, she was a very lovely woman, said Blanche. He was a very unattractive little man, and she was having a terrific love affair. In real life, the man was a police inspector, but here Fleming makes him a colonial serv- civil servant, Philip Masters. After Fetty's and, Co- and Oxford, Masters is sent by the government to Nigeria, where, quote, he was lenient and humane towards the Nigerians, which came as quite a surprise to them. End quote. Although shy and rather uncouth, Masters meets and marries an air hostess, Rhoda. When he is posted to Bermuda, Rhoda starts an affair and, rather like Molly Huggins with Robert Kirkwood, didn't make the smallest attempt to soften the blow or hide the affair in any way. Poor Masters was wearing the biggest pair of horns that had ever been seen in the colony. Masters is then posted to Washington for five months and Rhoda, ditched by her lover, prepares to be reconciled with her husband. But when he comes back, he tells her that they'll divorce in a year and in the meantime, he has split the house into two sections. He'll never speak to her in private, although they will continue to appear as a couple in public. A year later, Masters returns to England, leaving his wife penniless and with debts, an act of cruelty that he would have been incapable of a few years before. When all kindness has gone, when one person obviously and sincerely doesn't care if the other is alive or dead, then it's just no good, explains the governor. This was when the quantum of solace stood at zero. It's extraordinary how much people can hurt each other, says Bond. And so yes, as Josh was intimating, quantum of solace, which is really the only connection in title to the short story, is is the modicum of respect that you need to hold in a relationship before giving up entirely on it so once you lose the quantum of solace the relationship is done 
And that is signified through some of the gestures of Craig's bond in this film, right? Certainly at the end, throwing away the necklace and all that. Like, he, he's lost it now. There is no more solace that he feels, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the idea. But the story itself is really weird because this is not a, not really a James Bond story. Now, I don't know why I hadn't been doing this, Josh, but we did, uh, we did over a year on the Bond stories. And I've been going back and looking through all the books. I should have just been listening to our podcast on what we thought about these stories. So <laughs> I did go back and do that for this one. And I mean, short of playing you part of that. I can say, Josh, you, you you went at this quite romantically. You defended this story in a way that I just wasn't willing to do. And mm. you, you kind of liked the fact that this was Fleming giving us something a little bit different. Bond is in, uh, he, he's in Nassau, he's in the Bahamas because he's uh, trying to stop gun running into Cuba, okay? So think like a Hemingway kind of uh, uh, Harry Morgan um, to have and have not, right? That type of bogey story. That That's basically what Bond is in there doing, right? Yeah. And as he's he's sitting at one of these dinners that which Matt Parker's book says Fleming was getting quite tired of this type of uh, socializing and he's sitting there at the governor's dinner and after all the guests have gone the governor and Bond sit down and have a final drink and they talk about marriage Bond says something just kind of off the cuff to get a conversation going because he finds it a bit stilted he says oh if I'm ever getting married I'm going to marry a host an air hostess a woman that you know knows how to serve a man and blah 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 and then the governor, and, and then the governor says, "I mean, Bond's not really serious because he doesn't want to get married." But the governor then says, "Well, interesting, you say that. I got a story about that." And after at the end of the story, he he tells Bond that that was an air hostess that you were sitting next to, who now is with this Canadian industrial guy, right? Um, and I'm not going to go through and read the whole story because the story is narrated by the governor about this relationship that just falls apart, which Fleming is writing almost cathartically because it's representing features of his own relationship. They're spending time away from each other now, he and Anne. He's writing at GoldenEye in the winters and she's now staying in England. And so things aren't really going well there. But what I did think I would read, not so much of the story uh, of these two characters, but I thought I'd read a little bit from the beginning Kind of the, the exposition leading into the governor's story, okay? If, if that's cool. I'll just give you a taste of it. And now it was only 9.30, and the governor and Bond were faced with one more polite hour before they could go gratefully to their beds, each relieved that he would never have to see the other again. Not that Bond had anything against the governor. He belonged to a routine type that Bond had often encountered around the world. Solid, loyal, competent, sober, and just. The best type of colonial civil servant. Solidly, competently, loyally, he would have filled the minor post for thirty years while the empire crumbled around him. And now, just in time, by sticking to the ladders and avoiding the snakes, he had got to the top. In a year or two, it would be the GCB and out. Out to gold mining, Cheltenham, Tunbridge Wells, with a pension and a small packet of memories of places like the True Shaloman, the Leeward Islands, British Guiana, that no one of the local golf club would have heard of or would care about. And yet Bond had reflected that evening how many small dramas, such as the affair of the Castro rebels, must the governor have witnessed or been privy to. How much he would know about the checkerboard of the small power politics, scandalous side of life in small communities abroad, the secrets of people that lie in the files of government houses right around the world. But how could one strike of spark off this rigid, discreet mind? How could he, James Bond, whom the governor obviously regarded as a dangerous man and as a possible source of danger to his own career, extract one ounce of interesting fact or comment to save the evening from being a futile waste of time? Bond's careless and slightly mendacious remark about the air hostess had come at the end of some desultory conversation about air travel that had followed dully, inevitably, on the departure of the Harvey Millers to catch their plane from Montreal. 
The governor had said that Boak were getting the lion's share of the American traffic to Nassau because though their planes might be half hour slower from Idlewild, their service was superb. Bond had said, boring himself with his own banality, that he would rather fly slowly and comfortably than fast and uncosseted. It was then that he had made the remark about the air hostess. Indeed, said the governor in a polite, controlled voice, that Bond prayed might relax and become human. Why? Oh, I don't know. It would be fine to have a pretty girl always tucking you up and bringing you drinks and hot meals and asking if you had everything you wanted. And they're always smiling and wanting to please. If I don't marry an air hostess, there'll be nothing for it but a Japanese. They seem to have the right ideas, too. Bond had no intention of marrying anyone. If he did, it would certainly not be an insipid slave. He only hoped to amuse or outrage the governor into a discussion of some human topic. I don't know about the Japanese, but I suppose it has occurred to you that these air hostesses are only trained to please, that they might be quite different when they're not on the job, so to speak. The governor's voice was reasonable and judicious. Well, since I'm not really very interested in getting married, I've never taken the trouble to investigate. There was a pause. The governor's cigar had gone out. He spent a moment or two getting it going again. When he spoke, it seemed to Bond that the even tone had gained a spark of life, of interest. The governor said, There was a man I knew once who must have had the same ideas as you. He fell in love with an air hostess and married her. Rather an interesting story, as a matter of fact. And that's where the story begins. Now, those bits of very not James Bond action make for an interesting story. Uh, one that Josh likes, I know. And one that... It's not like his favorite, you know, I gotta give the guy's credit. It is a, a poorer story than the others, but Josh, you did like this, didn't you? I did, I, I found it kind of just like a, like a, almost like a Mildred Pierce, like a, just like a, a fun melodrama. Right. Well, so there you go, a little bit of the source material and where it's coming from, but very different to the film. I suppose the connection is in the title, right? And what Quantum of yeah. Solace means at the end of a relationship. Bond needs to clean the slate. I mean, and you know what, you got a Canadian businessman and then they translate that to a canadian agent so i, I guess that works <laughs> maybe yeah well look guys that's that's a bit about uh, the source material are you interested in hearing what uh, granio thinks i would love to hear what granio thinks it's that time of the episode folks where we uh feature an interview with our grandmother a very important figure still kicking and still a bond fan the one responsible more than anyone else, probably, apart from each other, Josh, of keeping us interested or getting us interested in Bond. And if you don't like family interviews, then fast forward 14 minutes and you don't have to listen to it. Hello? Hello, Granny Powell. How are you doing? Uh, fine. Yeah, you get your phone. You get your phone charged this time. <laughs> did I what? You, did yes, you? I did. Oh. You know where it was? Where? In in my um, bag, and when I went, I left it when I went down to have a shower. Oh, I see. <laughs> and I could hear the damn thing ringing somewhere. I couldn't find it. Well, we're past that now. <laughs> <laughs> so now the first place I'll look is in in, in my bag. Right, so then let's talk Quantum of Solace. Um, what were your feelings about it? I wasn't into that one like I had been with the rest of it. I found it difficult to get interested. Yes, and I think part of that has to do with the beginning, because it's just so fast, isn't it? Oh, God, yes. I mean, let's face it, that the, the car chases, you know, there wasn't enough room in the, on the street for two cars anyway. <laughs> no, no. Whoever the driver was, it must have been terrific. Well, it's funny you mention that because I believe in the production, 
interviews, there was some comment about how narrow the roads were and how challenging yeah. it was for the team to film that because of the narrow roads. Well, all English country roads are like that, you know. You can when you see a car coming towards you, you think you're going to bump into it. Yes, and I mean that was in Italy, though, wasn't it? Oh yes, I know, but that does. I mean, Italy was almost as old as England. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. You think about it history-wise. Mm-hmm. Anyway, no, I really didn't get um, you know a kick out of it. I had to to think about what, but the, this was all after uh, what's the name died, wasn't it? His girlfriend, Desper, yeah. Vesper, right? I'm trying to remember her name. And it is it is out of sequence too. Like we we didn't we randomly select the films to watch by spinning a roulette wheel, which has a number corresponding to the number of the film. So yeah, it it just so happened that this one came after or came before we watched Casino Royale. So yes, it is out of sequence, and it's a little tricky because it's technically a sequel, isn't it? Yes, it is really. Yeah. It was. It it, it takes you a while to realize that this is. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the mood he's in is not very, um, <laughs> and he's not a very happy man. Well, that, that's right. He's not a happy man. And uh, no. that, that leads on to something I wanted to ask you, because I know that you like Daniel Craig, and I know that you're a fan of his, yes, yeah, of his exactly. Bond. Um, but this is a James Bond that doesn't have a lot of charm or humor. It's very much an action hero, James Bond. and. In this film, no. And maybe, not at all. maybe part of the reason why you didn't enjoy yeah, it he's, as he's, much. A, he's in a mood all the time, isn't he, really? In this one, but he that, is. That, yeah. uh, um, but out in the desert, you know, the, the scenery was, was all the same. Mm-hmm. There was nothing, you know, about it that you could say was nice. So you weren't taken by the scenery very much, were you? No, and, and that place there, you know, it was like a, a, a jailhouse. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's supposed to be, you know, built, I guess, for a bunch of crooks. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's like, uh, yeah, it's like Las Vegas before the rest of the city was built. Who was the, the, uh, the, 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 the council? Oh, the big guy, the, the bad guy. Yeah. Dominique Green was the character's name, yeah. Yes, yeah, so, that's who his name was. Just, mm-hmm. But, I mean, the, the actor himself, you know, I thought he was great. Mm-hmm. Matthew Amalric. He's a French guy. Okay, well, um, this is why I sounds that was when I asked you. Yeah, he's a French guy, let's see. <laughs> I've never seen him in anything before or, or after. He was sleazy, like he's supposed to be, I guess. I mean, there's like, got a, an attitude, you know, mm-hmm. that you, you pick up on before anything. Um, but what did you think of the plot of the villain? He's basically looking to create a coup d'etat uh, in Bolivia and take control of the water and then sell it back to the Bolivians at an inflated yes, price. Yes, but he, he pretended he was looking for oil, mm-hmm. but the water he wanted to... Yeah, and by pretending to look for oil, he managed to keep the Americans yeah. on the side. But, but he was going to do... He was making a dam, wasn't he? Yeah, that's right. Did, yeah. Didn't you use dynamite and... and and dynamite a river bed or something? Or yes, he did, in an effort to dam the water from the water supply. Yeah, yeah and then he's going to sell it back to them. That's right, which is, it's, I mean, it's... it's yeah, when you come perfect. to think of it, you know, mm-hmm. that's pretty, that's pretty bad. It's terrible, but it's it's also it's also quite timely because that's the fight, isn't it, for the future is fresh water. People keep, they're talking less about oil and talking more about 
freshwater it's, reserves. It's, it's like everything else. You take for granted because it's water. You know, there's, going to be, there's lots of it. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I guess the plot works quite well, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Mm -hmm. But it does... It's like... It took almost the whole film before you realized it was the water thereafter. Yeah, and I think you're right there. The script could have done a better job of fleshing it out because you've really got to follow along carefully, and that takes some of the enjoyment out of the film, doesn't it? Yeah, it did. It, it was, and the desert scenes were, you know, they were so blah. There was nowhere else to go. It was all desert, wasn't there, really? That's right, yeah. If it weren't for the explosions in the hotel itself. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That The rest of the team were, were so nasty. Well, as... You know, they, got, they, were, they were involved with... From the beginning to the end. Yeah. Don't even make fun of that young girl. What did you think of the man who was working with Dominique Green, the guy with the bowl haircut? Uh, the henchman named Elvis, who got tripped up on the steps and then he died in the explosion. What did you think of him? What uh, kind of a haircut? Uh, like a Caesar haircut, like a bowl haircut. I think it was okay. a. I think it was a hairpiece. Do you remember when? Okay. You, you don't remember that, huh? Well, no. I, guess, I guess that answers my question. <laughs> the, fa the fact that you don't remember him is. Uh, is I don't remember him at all. No. <laughs> well, you said he fell down the stairwell. Yeah, the, the Agent Fields, the red-headed girl, um, played by Gemma Ardenton, or yeah. Agent Fields trips him up as they go to the party, and that causes you know him to break. And he, he, then he walks around with like a, a neck brace on for a while. Oh, okay. Anyway, he <laughs> dies. Neck brace, I got mine on now. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, well, you, you know, kindred spirits, I guess, you and uh, Elvis. Yeah, yeah, kindred. Okay. <laughs> can't be, can't be that kindred. You didn't even remember him. Well, I wasn't. Well, let's put it this way. I, of all the, the Bond films, I the reason why I couldn't remember, I guess, Quantum of Solace is because I'm impressed with it at the beginning either. Mm, maybe it's not worth remembering in your books. Yeah. Well, that brings me on to another question because, as a Daniel Craig fan, and I like Daniel Craig as well. Now, we're not speaking just of Craig, but in this film, there's not a lot of humor. It's more of a revenge, more of a serious, sour-faced yeah. yeah. Bond. How, I mean, how do you feel about him? Did you enjoy him as much in this one? Eva Mamowitz was browned up with him. <laughs> Remember? Yeah. She, all, well, she, she gave the impression that she was browned up with him. I liked Ed Judy Dench in this film, though. I, I did think she... Oh, was. yeah. She, I like her in all of them. Mm -hmm. She's particularly good. I was pleased when, when they re replaced M with her. Hmm. Here's a question for you. Why do you think, if they're trying to slow him down and they don't want Bond going rogue, why would they have sent that attractive Agent Fields to go stop him? Like, surely M would have known that he would have ended up in bed with her, right? That was a young girl who was covered with oil, right? That's right, yeah, drowned in oil, yeah. Yeah. She was sent to bring him back to, to London, wasn't she? Well, yeah, but she fell for him fairly quickly. You know, there wasn't much of a fight. She, she's well, not yeah, the sort he worked of on that. Well, of course, but M should have known that this is not the type of person who's. So going maybe she, maybe she knew what Mom was going to do and and set, set him up. Hmm. You think so? I think she does that sometimes. You know, realizing what he's going to do. Well, the opposite of what she wants him to do. All right, so you think maybe that was a deliberate move on M's part because she wanted Bond to keep working? Yeah. 
Oh, that's a that's a generous thought on your part. Yeah, sure. Maybe, yeah. maybe so. What did you think of all of the opera stuff, the setting in Austria? At the well, I mean, that, it was a great place. I figured for them to all get together and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, nobody would would be able to pick out uh, who, who the bad guys were in, in a crowd of people like that. Yeah, and it makes you think, doesn't it, about hockey games and sports venues and theaters and, and opera and things where people could be walking around just... Issue exactly. little sentences and, and, and you don't know anything about who you're, next, you're sitting next to. That's right. Yeah, it's quite good. And all they're doing is speaking in such hushes and short sentences it's, that it could be anything they're saying. Well, this, isn't, isn't there? A, isn't that how they're taught when they go to spy school? <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. I'm not quite sure what they teach at spy school, but well, I mean, Zep was worked for MI6, did he, or whatever. Oh, Fleming did, yeah. Well, Fleming worked for Naval Intelligence. Well, he, he, I remember um, reading a, a biography of him, and he had to go to special training school for a year or more. Yeah, oh yeah. This was during the, during the Second World War, you know, when, and he was really, uh, uh, had a lot to spy on. I guess that's where a lot of the stories came from, really. Mm-hmm. Because didn't he... he he wrote mostly about his own experiences when he did the 007 series. Well, he, I don't think he wrote about his own experiences, but he put a lot of those into his big stories. Yeah. Uh, yes, and uh, everybody else's too, I guess. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the original story, Quantum of Solace, actually is a short story that Fleming wrote and has little to nothing to do with this film. It's about a divorce between two high-profile socialites who kind of colonial figures in the West Indies uh, or the Caribbean during the 50s or 40s or something like that. And one of them, I believe, is the governor of um, Nassau. I think it's set in Nassau in the Bahamas. Anyways, yeah. it's uh, an interesting story, but Bond is told this story at a dinner party. And I guess there's very little that happens. It's not an action story. Yes, I remember thinking when I was reading those books years ago, that a lot of them were were written about things that happened in, in, down in, in the Caribbean, you know, that yeah. smaller islands, mm-hmm. the countries. Yeah, so it was were. all, you know, during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What did you think of the Bond girl in this one? The, the one that... Uh, the one who's on her own revenge mission, yeah. Yeah. I thought it was great. She was great. Mm-hmm. Destroy her sister and our, her mother. Mm-hmm. And if she did get him to, and in the end, this is the part that I was pleased with. Yeah, she did. She got back at the general. And Bond, yeah, she shot him anyway. But Bond never sleeps with her himself. So she's kind of different in that respect, too. You know, this isn't... That's true. Yeah. She had her own uh, priorities. Yeah, she had her own agenda. Yeah. What What's your feeling, then, about the... <clears throat> or I guess I'll just ask you straight out. Like I ask you each of these times we talk... How did you feel about the film overall? Is this going to be one of your favorites? I think it's probably going to be down at the bottom, isn't it? No, no, that's not my favorite. No, this will be one that you forget about, won't it? I'll put that down towards the bottom. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it Because there. I'm thinking about the other ones, and I enjoyed them all. Like, I get, uh, you know, much well, better than this one, anyway. So, so far, then, this is your least favorite yeah. of the ones we've done, yeah. Okay, well, that's good to get. Is there anything... What's the next one? Well, we're not sure yet. I won't know until after okay. Saturday. But, so I'll let you know after our, our show. What okay. feeling, um, 
Are there any takeaways for you from this movie? Any things that you did like? Any things that you did remember that you'll... No, except... Not really, no. No. I, I except I like the, uh, the, the relationship between uh, Craig and uh, M at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good, wasn't it? Yeah. They have great chemistry as a pair. Yeah. But exactly. I also, I also thought. And then from now on, too, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it seems to me that after that, you know, there was a greater, greater under, uh, relationship between the two of them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the rest of the films. Right, well, that's great. Thank you for your comments on that one, and we'll we'll get okay. we'll get you lined up for our next one after I find out what it is. Okay, great. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye. So there you go. There's uh, Granny O's opinion on that one. I don't know if that registered with you in a way you thought it would. Well, that's what I expected, I kind of think. Um, yeah. yeah, I would say the movie probably gone too quickly, um, especially for someone her age. But I would love, though, that she was more uh, on top of things regarding the plot than I was. Yeah, like she, the, oil, the oil part in the water. Yeah, like she, I, she, I know, I didn't she got get it. it. She, she's on point. She was on point, man. And that's funny. Eh? I mean, it uh, was on point beyond me. Yeah, <laughs> me too. Absolutely. But yeah. this this woman like, like this woman is a career is a career film watcher though like that this is yeah. what she does now. Yeah. But but you're right, she was on point. What were you I saying, do. Josh? I also loved. I was going to say I also loved how she didn't remember Elvis either. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't even remember him because that was and a question was, that you you wanted me to find out, didn't you? Yeah. And one thing we did like to mention too was how like he was kind of meant to be almost like a comedic like kind of henchman. Like but I love the fact that he's like in a like he's like in a neck brace neck, like through, neck brace. through the last half of the movie, you know. Like it's almost like it was like I don't know like a Monty Python or like a fish called Wanda kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like, 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 like Michael Palin and a fish called Wanda. That's what that reminded yeah, me of. Here's mm-hmm. Ken. Yeah. <laughs> See, I mean, did, but that just doesn't play. It falls flat, doesn't it? It, oh, it does, does because the movie Literally, doesn't, the just movie, like the he movie did. doesn't let it. Yeah, it falls flat work. just like just like Elvis did. Ah, just <laughs> just like him, yeah. Well. I guess there's really very little else for us to do, guys, but select the film that we're going to do next. Any hopes, dreams, wishes? I'm, I'm, th- I think it's going to, I think just because of the yeah, odds, I think it's going to be a Roger Moore film. Yep. All right. Well, I guess with that said, it's uh, time for us to roll the the big roulette wheel and see what happens. Here we go. There's the wheel going. Let's see if you're right, Josh. Like last week, or like last show, it's uh, suspended, suspended, suspended. There we are. It's seven red. And by my take, that is Diamonds Are Forever. Another Connery. Another Connery. Diamonds Are Forever. Connery's last. That's our next film. Very exciting. How do you feel about that? What do you remember about that? I remember Jill St. John being really annoying and Connery being kind of overweight. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, he's kind of overweight. He's he's not really into the role physically, but there's a lot of eye candy in this, and I don't mean that from a, like a sexual point of view, like nice so girls to look at, like Roger Ebert was talking about. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean it like that. There's there's a lot of visual stuff, a lot of color and sound and light, and there's a lot of stuff going on here. Great score and atmosphere. Was it Guy Hamilton that directed that? Yeah, movie? I think Hamilton <laughs> did direct this one. Yes. Yeah. Mm. 
but we yeah. will we will see actually yeah. I'm just checking I'm that now to watch, to watch that again and kind of dr- drink it in. Not one of my favorites. So I feel like we're gonna have a whole bunch of Roger Moore's in a row. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think it's gonna. Yeah, maybe, maybe we will. Uh, Guy Hamilton, yes, indeed. Okay. Yeah. So that's the Goldfinger. Uh, I believe he also directed um, Live and Let Die too, didn't he? Guy Hamilton, yeah. Yeah, and I think he did Man with the Golden Gun. Maybe your your memory is better than mine on that point. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, it looks like it's diamonds are forever. It's it's funny how we jump though. I mean, that's the nature of our program, of course, is that we're jumping styles and years yeah, and generations, really. But it, it's fun and it's different. But man, we yeah. are jumping styles, aren't we? We time. are. And we're also kind of another thing too. This is almost a Quantum Solace thing because now we're getting, I guess, the continuation of On Her Majesty's Secret Service, although not, not really. really. All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot. It's been it's been good fun, and I think we did a good job on Quantum, although we didn't we, did. uh, we didn't yeah. destroy it as technically no, as we, we could did. have. Well, well, it was constructive we were criticism. We were fair. I think we were fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we had some really uh, insightful conversations in regards to all aspects of the film, which which is the whole point of this. <laughs> I do kind of sit with Granio on this one, though. This is not a Bond film that I'm going to put on again. When I watched it, no. I watched it with Sarah. Um, both of us, both of us agreed that you know Craig's pretty good in this. He is okay in this, and it's fun to watch. And there are some nice things in it, but it just doesn't hold up to his other work that I recall. And I get more fun when Bond is a bit charming. Like, I do like yeah. to have a few laughs in a Bond because film. That's, well, that's what we're, I mean, I would that's say what Bond is known as. This is charming yeah. uh, to an extent. He's super suave, sophisticated but secret it, agent. Again, this is, remember when I said it, there's another, it'll be another generation of Bond fans that are growing up with the, with the Craig ones, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're growing up with, you know, watching, even though, like, you know, you know we're a product of the 70s and 80s here. Yeah. We, we probably started from the beginning. Whereas some people might start with the Craig one. So then they're not used to that kind of charming. That's true. And who's to say that it won't come full circle, right? Well, yeah, exactly. It's very yeah. Yeah, Exactly. Yes. Lazenby certainly did. And his story yeah. arcs. So maybe maybe society by and large will move back to wanting the sort of freedom and humor of, of a different bond. So who knows? what they'll do i don't think they should try i mean and i know we're getting ahead of ourselves now maybe this conversation is saved best for when our series is finished but i I don't i don't want them to just replace daniel craig with another big action man like a tom hardy or even an idris elba like the guys that get mentioned a lot i don't want to see another i don't want to see craig's bond in another person give me another give me another invention of the character yeah, yeah exactly. like maybe like a slimmer sort of Jane one that Bond. has well <laughs> No, I don't want a Jane Bond. And the thing is is like I'm okay I with like you know I'm joking. Physically fit like they you know they can they can definitely fill out a tux and whatever you know but um I am okay with having a like a like a Brosnan where like you know he he's fit but he's not I don't have to see like the I can't count his six pack through mm-hmm. his shirt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll have someone with a little more finesse and you know this I would like to see that again, personally, mm-hmm. in, my, in my opinion. That's on my grocery list for a Bond. <laughs> okay, good luck shopping. Yeah. Yeah, right? Yeah. My yeah. my choice for Bond, uh, I for the for a new Bond, I mean, people have mentioned Tom Hardy and Idris Elba and stuff. But some, I agree, something really different. Uh, well, you were saying, was it, uh, what's his name there from, I can't remember his name. Uh, the redhead, he was, uh, he was in Damien Lewis. Yeah. Damien Lewis, he would be good. Yeah. He'd be different. I a, like him. A, a ginger Bond. I also would, would also recommend to um, it'd be the second Welsh Bond would be uh, Matthew Reese from oh, yeah. Yeah. from the Americans. Yeah. I, I, I think he'd he, be a really good Bond too. He's a fantastic actor. I well, think. I'm just going to put this one out there, okay? Um, Jeff Chapman. Uh, you know, I, why not? Why not go to an unknown? 
go to an right? unknown yeah. Canadian. Why not do that? No. Go yeah. go to the dry cleaners, Jeff. Get your tux all all <laughs> ready. And how do you know it's not already ready, Josh? Oh, because <laughs> well, I, I hope I you don't go to my closet. Not that there's anything you the, shouldn't see, but you know, oh yeah, okay, yeah, you keep your tux in your in the in your own closet, not in the main closet. Yeah, exactly. Roommate talk. <laughs> Roommate talk. And on that point, guys, we'll see you next time on Bomb by Numbers. So it's goodbye for me. Goodbye for me. Au revoir.